0: Point two. Just who the hell are you? He's James T. Kirk. Don't you read history? What did you say your name was? Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? Did we violate the treaty, Captain? Red alert! All hands! Battle stations!
1: What are you scratching at?
0: Incorrect. Can we just get down to it, please? Prepare to attack. All hands battle station. And now Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell.
2: Hello and welcome to Star Trek Monthly Mondays number 19. Awesome, awesome. I am a very gassy Scott Gardner and I am a hopefully soon to be gassy
3: Chris Honeywell because I keep up with the Joneses or the gardeners as 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 it were today. <laughs> we're both we're both doing the dew, do, so yeah, I am doing mountain dew whiteout. Which has so much caffeine that it'll completely erase your memory.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and you, everybody knows that I'm just straddling that edge as as far as that goes. So this could be just the you and me both shove over it.
2: You and me both, brother. I'm telling you. I think I absolutely shocked the hell out of Mike Bailey the other day. We were we were recording a show and there was some minute... Oh, I know what it was. He was talking about uh, Iron Man. Um, an iron man issue with that had the hulk in it and there was this part where uh the hulk comes across this little kid playing with his toys and i was like is that what the is that the one where the kid's playing with his micronauts and the hulk sits down and plays with him and i think i just like shocked the hell out of my it's like you know i don't remember like my wedding anniversary and shit like that right i remember like the kid playing with micronauts and some obscure issue of, of iron man you know it's like wow you know Mine like a steel <laughs> trap for horse shit, you know, but the important right. things, it's like a sieve. Uh-huh, that's <laughs> funny. Anyway, now you were, uh, I remember what the hell you told me you were going to talk about, but you were going to say something, so say it. Oh, I'm going to gloat about my hometown, man.
3: <laughs> hey, it's spring in Rochester, and Rochester is just beautiful in the spring. It's mm-hmm. just all the trees come to life. It's just looking awesome. There's, uh, i i'm not a native rochester I've been, but i've been living here for the last 20 years i love it
2: now what um, what are the natives there called or are they Ro- rochesterians Rochesteri-
3: rochesterians oh jesus you guys and need to rochester like rockies or something rochesterians my age and younger gripe and bitch about it cuz it's their hometown but god damn it it's awesome here this is where f- literally last night i was at ground zero of where film was born at the george eastman house where they have a a theater called the Dryden Theater. And they show, basically they have vaults underneath this place filled with movies, and they just pull out cherry prints of movies that haven't been shown on a screen and and play them. So I went to see this obscure Paul Newman-directed Ken Kesey adaptation uh, called Sometimes a Great Notion, but when it was released for TV it was called um, Never Give an Inch. Also I found out trivia... Is it was the first movie ever shown on HBO, and um, great movie. I remember seeing it as a kid and seeing it on a big screen. It just blew me away, and I was sitting there thinking, "Man, how lucky am I to live, you know, within a five minute bike ride of this place, and just be able to pop in here for? And it's seven bucks, you know, normal, you know, cheap for a movie place. It's a little under the normal cost." And see movies I'm never gonna see on a big screen. And the guy there, I don't know his first name, but his last name's Healy, the curator, is a freak. He's a freak, man. He gets the weirdest fucking shit there ever. And he comes out and he introduces each movie. And this is a very stuffy place, too. You know, it's a very, it's a museum type of atmosphere. And he gets the bloodiest, goriest, weirdest movies. So I grabbed the flyer. For the summer, for the May, June, you can hear it rustling in the background as I open up this huge flyer. Listen to some of these movies I'm going to be able to get to see on a big screen. Um, the original George Pal Time Machine. I'm oh. just skipping to the sci fi ones that, you know, that, that, um, Things to Come, uh, 1936. Um, Rollerball, the original Rollerball, the Norman Jewish, With, uh, Jewish and uh, James seventy Con, right? Yes. Um, Eraserhead, David Lynch's first, you know, full-length movie. Bizarre, which I have seen on a big screen. But uh, Strange Days, uh, Catherine Bigelow, who just won Best Picture for The Hurt Locker, you know, one of her first movies when and uh, you know James Cameron was involved in this. Hasu, which is this weird. I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's this total Salvador Dali-like horror movie from. Uh, is it China, chinese or japanese let me see it's japanese
2: rather the um, same thing
3: a du, du yeah <laughs> tell that to someone who's I'm chinese kidding. Someone i'm
2: kidding i'm kidding i know we're going to get letters now <laughs> or say, it to, say it to someone
3: who's like from taiwan and they'll okay. you'll see something. japanese
2: chinese vietnamese are all the same damn thing that that's my father talking actually that i was kidding that was a joke
3: may 30th dystopian sci-fi comedy
2: double feature Idiocracy and Sleeper by Woody Allen. You know, I hate Woody Allen, but I actually kind of dig that film, and I love Idiocracy. I would totally be on board with with checking that double feature out. That would be cool. Now in June, listen to this. June 3rd, Logan's Run.
3: Logan's run on a big screen, oh my God, they pull nice shiny prints out of the vaults, you know the literally the temperature controlled vaults and throw them up there um a uh, john borman uh the guy who did um uh excalibur Sean Connery movie. I love it. it's completely seventies cheese value, but it's it's funny. The whole movie looks like it... The cinematography looks like it's part of a 70s Penthouse Magazine photo shoot, if anybody's familiar with 70s Penthouse Magazine. <laughs> Brazil, something I have seen on the big screen when it originally came out, but goddamn great movie to see on a big screen, you know? Five minutes from my house. Uh, Apocalypse Now Redux, which is a... a there's also a, a specially Coppola put-together... Screening of uh the Godfather um survival of the dead, the new George Romero movie, which is available on d v d now but they're going to have a screening of it and they and they're going to even have a double feature of Metropolis, a new restoration of the original metropolis, probably knowing them with live music there to play along with it if there's you know a, a score that goes along with it, they usually'll get live- uh, live musician or musicians to play it um and Here's the one that took my breath away and maybe Scott will be like pawning his left eye or something, (laughs) selling it on the black market to get a plane ticket up here for, but Sunday, June 20th, 2 p.m. and 7 p.m., Superman, the movie. This new version of one of the most popular films of all time features the never-before-seen footage and revamped soundtrack. You know what I'm gonna do? That can't adequately convey the widescreen spectacle of this film. I'm gonna start
2: checking the classifieds and like Craigslist and stuff for somebody who's looking for like assassination jobs, just so I can I can (laughs) work out some (laughs) deal.
3: Is there an assassination section on Craigslist? I'm just saying. I mean, I'll tell you something. When these guys say never-before-seen footage, we're not talking KCOP footage. We're talking with that you know. This guy knows his stuff, so he knows that if it's never before seen, it's never before seen. And supposedly, Richard Donner had his hand in this restoration project. So. <laughs> oh, my
2: God. See, I was just excited to find out that uh, there's going to be an, an event in Atlanta in, I think it's June, sometime in June, at uh, Piedmont Park. They're going to be playing Star Wars, the special edition in the park. I'm assuming it's like drive-in movie style. <laughs> now, I was excited right. about that, but this thing you're talking about sounds like really, 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 really awesome. I'm telling you. Oh, yeah. You, this, I, would, this, I, would... I mean, this uh,
3: guy in a suit will come out onto a podium before they – you know, you come there and the, the the um the curtain slowly rises, old school curtain, and it's an old small balcony theater. And the guy comes out and does totally a mini little podcast on, you know, he gives you some history, takes a couple tangents here and there and gives you some trivia about it and, you know, tells you what special things have been done and what to look out for. And and then off you go. I have seen, I've seen a 3D projection of Andy Warhol's Frankenstein there. They had Ray Harryhausen there a few years ago showing his movies and talking and talking you know, in between them. It, you can't beat oh, it.
2: I would. I Fans would. of
3: obscure, like, gore movies, like Ishii the Killer, They that was the first place I'd ever heard of Ishii the Killer, you know, and uh, one of the goriest, bizarre movies ever to come out. And uh, they played it there with gusto. <laughs> they don't shy away from content, they will play. Anything, no matter how they seem to actually, this curator seems to really veer towards the controversial and the bizarre. So, and I we got to get him on the show. We got to get him on the show and oh, find yeah. out how he's getting away with this shit in stuffy and stuffy Rochester at the museum where film started. How this deviant got his. <laughs> <laughs> Got his toes in the door and, and eventually took over because it's awesome.
2: I cannot tell you the horrible and twisted things I would totally be willing to do to see Logan's to see run that. on the big screen. Oh, yeah. Because I've never seen that particular movie on the big screen. But I, I'll I tell was... you,
3: movies with that whole 60s and 70s, you know, you know what I mean, that feel to them? Mm-hmm. When you see them projected on a big screen, they take a whole new... Oh, I'm dimension sure. to them yeah. like barbarella you know it still has that cheesiness that you see on tv but on the big screen it sucks you into it flash gordon's a prime example that you can watch and be like what a fun cheesy movie on tv but in the you know in the movie theater it sucked you into that world of cheese
2: well here's what i'm thinking dude a whole bunch of movies on that list have been on my mind lately because we got a piece of feedback somewhere recently and forgive me. I can't remember where it it came from or who it was from, but basically saying, you know, I love you. You know, you guys take on things like star Trek, star Wars, you know, whatever. Why don't you guys do more stuff? This may have spun out of our, our Robocop commentary actually, now that I think about it, but basically why don't you guys talk more about other sci-fi stuff, you know, classic sci-fi stuff. And you know, you and I had already been thinking a lot about this because you know, one of our back, a couple of our back burner projects are like Logan's Run and Planet of the Apes. So I got to thinking, you know, when you were telling me about this just before we started, that we should totally try to sync that up a little bit. So as you view these movies, I'll try to watch some of them as well. You know, some of the ones that that I, I already have or that I'm interested in or whatever and and try to do some sort of, you know, specials or something covering more of this stuff. Because there's, you know, you and I, there's such a laundry list of, of classic sci-fi stuff that we like, you know, movies and such, you know, like Day the the Stood Still and Beast from 20,000 Fathoms yes. and stuff like that. I would love to do episodes talking, you know, just one-off episodes talking about that stuff. Oh, covering
3: right stuff. here on the list, I mean, you've got... Um, the time machine. Yeah, you know? and that's going to be the first one on them. It, you know, and it's in
2: well, I and, like George Powell movies too because he also right. did that one. I'm I'm pretty sure he was the one that did uh, when worlds collide, and I like right. that movie yes. a
3: lot. And uh, Rollerball is just a fun movie, you know. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can uh, maybe we can do a little coverage of these movies alongside of uh, so and and like um. It would be funny, actually, to do it, like maybe if I could get into the Idiocracy sleeper double feature. That would be it. those would be two fun movies to do a a mm-hmm. show on. Definitely, because uh, we've definitely talked about Idiocracy, idiocracy before. Yeah, I, idiocracy. I, I, We could do a whole show on it.
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, we could. Well, how about ta- Star Trek? I was just gonna say <laughs> we should probably talk some Star Trek now. A couple of quick things uh, before we get into uh, just a little bit of the listener feedback. I don't know how to say this, so I'm just going to say it. What is up with you guys? We got some friggin' contests going on right now. An awesome contest. And we have not gotten a single submission for it. I'm deeply hurt and disappointed. You know, this is a great book. Maybe, are, are the questions too hard? Is that what it is? Are they too obscure? So, did you look at my list of questions? Oh, uh, yeah, I did see the list of
0: questions. Are well, well, they it... too hard for you, <laughs> Or <to this.
2: laughs>
0: oh, the questions hard? Oh, do you
2: I mean, come on. I mean, I made those questions in, like, five minutes, just doing some, like, simple... You know, searching around on our website, going, "Hmm, what did we talk about in this episode?" Okay, yeah, that's right, that's what we talked about. So, I mean, come on, if I can make the questions in five minutes, you can answer them in five minutes, all right? It's not hard. The book is frickin' awesome. It's the Star Trek Compendium, the most thoroughly researched and complete Star Trek reference work ever published. Of course, that's yeah, well, up- obviously, it's not enough for them. <laughs> it's by Alan Asherman. And this book covers all of the original series episodes in just awesome detail. I mean, all kinds of facts and information. It is really an awesome, awesome, awesome reference work. It even has uh, a great big section at the end devoted to uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture that I believe was new at the time this book was published. Lots of pictures, just tons of information um, about the cast, the crew, their other credits... It's really, like it says, you know, a very thoroughly researched and complete Star Trek reference work. But like Chris says, maybe that's not enough for you people. So here's what I'm going to do. What are you going to do? Here's what I'm going to do. I am going to offer you a choice of a couple uh, pot sweetening deals right here. Ooh, That totally didn't come off right. I like the sound of that. (laughs) (laughs) Not that kind of pot, my friend. I am going to give you the choice between two, two different Star Trek The Next Generation hardback edition novels. You can choose either Star Trek The Next Generation Imzadi by Peter David, which I have read, and it is a fantastic book. I'll, I'll just I'll tell you this much about it. It involves Riker and it involves the Guardian of Forever from uh city on the edge of forever it's a fantastic time travel story really really good stuff or you can choose this other book which i have heard awesome things about i have it but i have not had a chance to read it yet it is called star trek the next generation ship of the line that is ship with a p of the line by diane carey all i know about this book is that it uh it takes place um, evidently after First Contact because they have the newer edition. Actually, it says the first voyage of the Starship Enterprise 1701-E. So it's the newest edition of the Next Generation Enterprise from, from the latter movies. And it also has something to do with the character that Kelsey Grammer played on Next Gen. Um, the name of that captain is escaping me. But it was that one... Where they were stuck in that, uh, that loop where the Enterprise just kept blowing up over and over and over again. They had to figure out what the hell was wrong. And at the end of it, they free this, this other Federation ship from like this time loop thing. And it was the ship that was being captained by, uh, by Kelsey Grammer. Anyway, it has something to do with that character. I can remember the name of the ship was the Bozeman. But for the life of me, I can't remember what the name of the captain was. So, Scott. Okay. Yeah. What you're telling me is they have their choice... Of those two books. They have their choice of those two books and the Star Trek compendium. They get the Star Trek compendium. That's
3: almost too good to be true.
2: (laughs) Are you insane? I would throw in some Ginsu knives if I had Ginsu knives, but, you know. I just want
3: to mention that families of Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, employees of the Two True Freaks and DeManzo Corp, are void from this contest. We just had to get that out of the way.
2: That sucks. We never get in. I know,
3: man. I would win this one in a second.
2: So, there you go. I hope that was enough uh, pot sweetening for you there. So, uh, send in those cards and letters. Answer the damn questions, they're not that hard, and you'll get some free swag. So, there you go. Also, just completely off the cuff, this isn't even in my notes, but I just thought of this and I want to throw it out there real quick biblio mike if you are listening i saw where you posted something about that you're rewatching deep space nine i'm just curious as to why and uh get a hold of me dude um maybe we can uh maybe we can work something out i would love to have like a little star trek you know like uh the rest of star trek mini featurette that we can incorporate into this show maybe every once and again you know so if you if you are watching back through that series uh like I said, get a hold of me. We'll, we'll figure something out. Anyway, moving along, uh, I want to knock out a couple of uh, our awesome listener feedbacks here. We've got one entitled Star Trek Monthly Mondays, The Gang of Four. It says, Hi Chris and Scott, plowing through the Star Trek Monthly Monday episodes and wanting to throw in my two cents on an early concept you guys brought up. Based on the idea that Scotty, Uhura, Sulu, and Chekhov along with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy comprised the quote-unquote classic Trek cast that got used up front in all six original cast films and in the reboot film. First off, there was this site that documented the appearances of the various uh, characters throughout not only TOS but all the various incarnations of Trek as well as some other sci-fi programming. It was called the List of Lists. Well, the site went down years ago, and I can't seem to find any trace of the TOS character appearances chart at the moment. Anyway, another place that documents the comings and goings of cast members is the Logbooks.com, which has detailed episode guides for all sorts of sci-fi programming, and it lists whom appeared in a specific episode. Well, the thing is, recalling that list... While those four were clearly among the most used characters in TOS's history, I wanted to say Scotty was behind the big three, Nurse Chapel, Uhura, Sulu, another day player, and then Chekhov. But the bottom line was that none of them really were in more than 50 or so episodes. Also, Yeoman Ran and Nurse Chapel uh, get lumped in with that core as well. And to be fair, promotional material for the show did spotlight Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Uhura, Sulu, Chekhov, and Chapel, albeit she was uh, sleeping with the producer at the time. As that helps, the, yeah, exactly. As the quote-unquote cast, despite only Kirk, Spock, and McCoy being uh, the only names in the opening titles. My guess is that, based on those promotional materials, i.e., group photos on the bridge. It made it seem that despite having three people as the main cast, uh, that it was more of an ensemble for people watching it in reruns and such. Also, it was those characters that carried over Sans Walter Koenig for the animated series as well. That's a very good point. Giving more weight to a perceived importance to those characters. I also wonder how much the convention circuit of the 1970s also led to Duane Nichols, Takai, and Koenig being elevated as well. I mean, I don't have any documentation of who was making appearances or anything, but I wonder if there was a sense that, oh, so-and-so is making all these conventions appearances, so-and-so's character must have been popular and important. That means that character should be focused on heavily in the films or whatnot. He says, eh, just speculation on my part, but it is interesting that despite Star Trek only having three or three or two during season one main credited stars, somehow became an ensemble cast in the years after the show went off the air. And this one is from Steve Rogers, and I just want to say thanks, Steve. That is an awesome email, an awesome piece of feedback, and uh, I think he's absolutely right. I, I'm, I have no doubt the festival
3: you know, the the convention circuit had something to do with that, but, you know, there was also, I think, by them showing up in the movies, there was it was because there was such a long time period and people watched the reruns so much that they did, they became um, probably more familiar with those characters than if they'd just been watching each episode once right. in the original run, you know, and so, yeah, people wanted to see them, you know.
2: Well, he sent me a follow-up email in which he found the actual chart. And uh, for anybody that's interested, remind me, and I'll try to throw this either into the show notes or onto the forum or something when this episode goes up. But basically, here's how everything broke down. You've got Kirk and Spock were in all 79 episodes. McCoy was in 75 out of 79 episodes. Uh, And then from there it goes to Scotty was in 64. Sulu was in 50. Chekhov was only in 37 episodes. That's less missed than, the whole season. Yeah, that's less than half. Um, Uhura was in 67. So, so far she's the highest one of the mm-hmm. non, you know, beyond the, the core three. Chapel at 23, Kyle at 11, and Rand at 8. So, <laughs> I really liked Steve's email but ultimately i i still was left not really knowing what side of the quote-unquote argument he was on because my the point that i made when i brought all this up was that i I think it spun out of a conversation we were having about the new movie you know the jj abrams movie that it drove me a little bit nuts that he really jumped through a lot of hoops i felt to make sure that all seven people all those characters in that movie and i that was one of the things that kind of hurt that movie for me personally is i felt like you didn't need beyond kirk spock and mccoy and arguably scotty i didn't feel that i had to i didn't have a need yeah
3: but imagine the outrage
2: yeah well i, I think that that outrage would come from people that forgive me i don't mean to be ugly about this but i think that 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 comes from ignorance that comes from the think you know, from the thought that Oh, you, know, you can't have Star Trek without Sulu and Chekhov, and er- well, yeah, you can because there's a hell of a lot of episodes out there. They've been doing that it don't- for a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think that ultimately that hurt the movies in in a um, I don't want to say real world, but in a credibility sense that by Star Trek six. When these guys were at retirement age and about to yeah, don't they have any other friends? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean that that they're all still together. her is still at communications, you know. I mean Sulu was the only one that moved on, but you've got Chekov, poor Chekov, still at the helm, you know, and and, and all it just seems really silly by that point. I mean, three of them are captains for Christ's sake. You know, you've got you've got Scotty Kirk and Spock are all captains. That that just that really doesn't happen. I mean, even in the classic series, we saw that when other captains w- would come on board, you know, like if Kirk went to another ship or, or another captain came to the Enterprise, then suddenly whichever the ranking captain was became a commodore. Somehow that got lost when we got to the movies. You know, with with Spock and Kirk both serving on the same ship and both being captains, unless I'm mistaken, Kirk should actually be a, a commodore, shouldn't he? So it's little things like that that add into that while I enjoy all the movies, the further we go along and the further this cast all stays together, the kind of sillier it seems to get, honestly, you know? So anyway, that's my two cents on that whole thing. Okay, we got one other piece we're going to cover today, and this one is from Chris Tyler, also known as Hair Metal Hero from the Forum. Awesome. Awesome. How's it going, dude? And uh, I think this is our first piece of feedback, our first uh, email from him, right? Because we see him on the forums quite a bit, but I think this is the first actual email we've got. This one is entitled, Star Trek Dream Crew. He says, good day, freaks. It's Chris Tyler here, a.k.a. Hair Metal Hero from the forum. I just finished inhaling my delicious fast food lunch from a certain kingly sandwich shop while I was listening to the latest Trek Monthly Monday. I just want to stop right there and say, you know what? I, yeah. I want to get more emails <laughs> and feedback like this. I want to know what people are doing as they listen to the show. I know we a lot of people. want to know what you're eating. <laughs> what are you guys eating out there? I want to know what they're eating. I want to know what they're doing. I want to know where are you when you're listening to, to Two true I'll, Feaks.
3: I'll, I'll start it out. I'm eating a Hostess cupcake right now, a golden Hostess
2: cupcake, <laughs> not the chocolate kind. That's good for you. He's, mm. And he continues... And a thought popped into my head. Oh, that's dangerous. And I don't think it's been discussed by you two before. If you had Uh an ensemble, uh, excuse me, if you had to assemble a Trek dream crew in real life using at least one representative from each series, including Enterprise, sorry, that's half the fun of this, who would you pick and why? You can't double up on positions either. As I've thought about this question... I reserve the right not to answer my own query until <laughs> I have time to think about it. Well, that's it for now. Keep waving that freak flag high. Play it loud. And that's from Chris Tyler. Thank you, Chris. And uh, this is a great, great feedback because it uh, it, it really uh, made me think a lot. And, you know, I really should have written my thoughts down, but I, I really kind of wanted to try to tackle this stream of consciousness style. You know, just off the top of my head. Right, you know okay. what, what? Do we think so? All right, tackling the big position first, captain, and we got a lot of choices here. You know, you you've got uh, you've got Pike, you've got Kirk, you've got uh, let's yeah, see, whatever. Picard, whatever. Know. Well, I, is it a foregone conclusion then? Would it? It be- is with me, Kirk. Okay. Yeah. Oh, come on. Yeah, I... Well, captain, oh, my captain. Uh, yeah, I was of trying all to... all uh, the
3: captains, that's the captain I would follow into whatever yeah.
2: situation. Yeah, I think ultimately I would have to go to, with Kirk as well. Okay, now here's where it gets a little bit strange because as the series went on, they, they kind of shifted positions around. But since we're, we're mostly original Trek-centric, let's kind of go with the classic positions. So, say, uh, First Officer... Which doesn't necessarily have to be science officer, but say say first officer, who would we want to go with? And I'm going to pick one kind of out of left field. You know who I would love to see paired with Kirk as his first officer? I'd like to see Commander Shelby from uh, from Best of Both Worlds. Because I know that she, or at least I'm assuming that she went on to become... First Officer or, or some such in those uh, New Frontier novels. I know she's in those novels, and I'm assuming that that's the uh, the position that she filled in there. I haven't yet read any of those, but I've got, I've got a bunch of them. I just haven't made it to them yet. But I think that could be an interesting pairing. Because I think Kirk would have a tendency to want to bang her, but I think that she has that like professional like business bitch attitude to where she wouldn't necessarily succumb well, if, right away. You know, If you wanted to really... F- fuck with the Kirk sexual
3: energy, throw in Troy, make her first officer. (laughs) That would cause all kinds (laughs) of trouble. Kirk is captain, (laughs) but that's not my choice. That wouldn't be my choice, but that's what I, that would be my choice. If I wanted to really fuck with Kirk's hormones, who would be your choice? Now I'm going to start I, I'm going to have to, like, lay down a few... I'm not familiar with anything beyond Next Generation, really, enough to pick anybody from there or have any preferences. So mine's strictly going to be from the first two series. Okay. And and I'm and I'm not... and Unfortunately, I'm not going to be entertaining about it. I'm going to do it in the choice of, like, what I would want to see as far as, like, the drama that would come from these people being together and the the dynamics and story story potential. So first officer, I'm sticking with with Spock. Cuz Kirk and Spock is like salt and pepper, man. You got to have both of them <laughs> on the, on the table, you okay. know, to, you know they complement each other. So so if Spock, yeah, boring, if Spock there, boring there. there. Yeah, he's my say. dream first officer. He's my ultimate first officer doing the do. Of <laughs> of the Enterprise, you know? And I'm not going to be a dick and be like, well, uh, you can't improve over the original Enterprise crew. There's... I will make improvements, Yeah,
2: I think you definitely can, actually. But, uh... Alright, so would would Spock, for your crew, then, would he also double as science officer, or would you take a whole other choice for science officer? Well,
3: if I could put a science officer in there, I would put Data in there. Because I would love to see Data and Spock and Kirk working together. Mm -hmm. And it would also give... Um, McCoy, another punching bag. I like that idea. All right,
2: I, I, I buy there's that. Actually, there's a lot
3: of potential. There's a lot of potential with data thrown in there. Yep,
2: uh, th- that works for me as well. I think I was going to say data as well because I'm trying to think of who else filled science positions, and uh, I think ultimately he he would be the one that I would go with. All right, let's see. Uh, say like uh, the the Sulu checkoff positions. You know, the the helm and navigation. Gosh, that's a trickier one because I really liked uh, Travis Mayweather from Enterprise. But on that show, he's pretty much the dude. They're they're really seeing a lot of the later episodes. There weren't two guys at the front after uh, I think after Next Gen actually. Because let me see him Deep Space Nine when they finally got their ship, just one person ran it, and then Voyager it was uh, Paris. And then on enterprise it was just mayweather so really there's only one guy that fills that position after next gen so i would say i would say mayweather and then you know if you're going with kirk's enterprise i would actually like to see the other position whichever position mayweather didn't do have it just be a you know a different person all the time because i i like that element of classic trek when it wasn't always Sulu and and Chekov, you know, sometimes it'd be guys where you'd look at him, and right? Go, what the hell's that guy? But I like that, so it, it feels a little more realistic to me when it's not the same people all the frickin' time. So, well, what do you think?
3: Well, I would I would kick Sulu and Chekov out, mm-hmm. both of them out, much as I like their characters, and I would I would throw Jordy and Worf in there. Worf, because I just I want to get Worf in there in the in the mix. Well, Worf also... and Data in the mix of original Trek crew would be they would be technically you know way out of the out of you know the timeline right. as you know Data as far as technology wise and Worf being a Klingon, but that would you know there 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 would be a lot of um you know cool story elements that you could add from those from them you know
2: but would you want Worf doing that or would you now granted there, we didn't really have like a, a steady a security, security officer on right? kirk's ship wilson but, but well yeah but i mean if there was would you want it to be warf or would you want it to be somebody else no i would have it uh, i would have it be um tasha tasha yar yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking because that that gives you another uh, another bangable female for for Kirk. Kirk. Yeah, you got Kirk in the mix. He's like a go. wild animal.
3: There <laughs> you, you know? go. I mean, any you throw any women in there, and you're 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 just sort of like throwing them to the to the wolves. But yeah, that would add story. That's why you know, much as everybody hates her, that's why I'd still love to get Deanna Troy. <laughs> and Kirk re- reacted together because it would be she would just walk by
2: him and be like oh my god <laughs> I, <You> know, know. <laughs> I just thought of something going back to helm and, uh, and navigation for a second is uh, to represent another series but also to have uh, uh, you know another token alien in there I'd like to see that three armed dude from the, from yeah. the series be oh, the other yeah.
3: guy that would be really cool that, that would reminds cool. me I just read the first four, Star Trek Year 4, and he was in that. Yeah. The yeah. first episode, the first issue was written by DC Fontana and had him in it.
2: I read some of that. I can't remember what issues I've got. I, I don't think I have the whole thing, but... Uh, they were yeah. all good. One, yeah, one they are One was sort good.
3: of a, like a weird rehash of the Tholian web and the Enterprise incident. It was sort of a little mashup yeah. of, of those. And then after that, it had a whole story going about uh, the cloaking device that they stole from the Klingons. and Yeah and stuff like that it was i uh, i've read the first four and i really enjoyed them
2: yeah tony uh tony guagliardo um mobile home on the forum he sent me a bunch of those a few months back and i dug them big time they were they were really cool
3: they had that's they're very well illustrated too
2: now let's see communications that's one of those more boring posts i'm trying to think of who else we've seen fill that over the years besides Ahura and them but uh I don't know that maybe we could
3: throw the three hour dude in there.
2: See, I was kind of thinking that actually. Yeah. Promote him from, (laughs) from one position to another and move him over kind of thing. Um, so who does that leave chief engineer? And my natural inclination is to say Scotty, because I really like him so much and everything, but I'm trying to think, is there any, I guess the only other one that really comes to mind would be, um, um, Tucker from enterprise i liked him a lot and i would say if if i wasn't going to go with mccoy as the doctor then i would go with tucker as the engineer to give you that kind of you know to represent the southern boys you know what i mean Uh uh-huh and uh and then maybe instead of mccoy as the doctor and i know this is going to be the one everybody's going to be like are you nuts but i think i would go with dr Pulaski as the ship's doctor, because I, I would love to see her and Kirk butt heads. You know what I mean? I think, I think she would do the,
3: do the mommy daddy dance. Do you mean? No, I don't think so.
2: No, no. I I really think that they, that they would have great potential to not get along very well. And I'd love to see that. I'd like to see her be the one going, Jesus, what's with this guy, you know, and, and, and really getting on his ass about, you know?
3: Yeah. Well, that's, there never was really a, a a female character that could really get the best of Kirk too much,
2: and she Except, could, yeah, mm-hmm. she totally could.
3: That would be really cool.
2: But now I want to hear your choices for uh, for Chief Engineer and and Doctor Scotty, Scotty and McCoy. You just <laughs> I, sorry,
3: I'm sorry, everybody. No, that's cool. <laughs> but that's that's who I would choose. You know, that's what, I, I would just have. I basically would li- like to throw the mutants of of. Next generation in more than the right, you know, the, than the the regular human characters. I mean, I like the, I, you know, I I you know have like I I really like uh, Riker, but you know, yeah, having him with having him and Kirk is just like
2: well, see, I was actually much. thinking when when I was thinking about the captain, I think ultimately, like you it said, getting I think a lot of trouble <laughs> Kirk is ultimately a, a foregone conclusion as captain. But if you couldn't get Kirk. Or you just wanted to go a different route. I think my next choice actually would be Riker. Riker and Spock
3: would would strike an interesting dynamic, I think. Yeah. Would would, strike a similarly Kirk and Spock dynamic.
2: And I don't know where I would put this character, but... And this is not me just throwing DS9 a bone, but I actually, if there was one character on DS9 I actually really took to and I really enjoyed and everything that I would like to try to figure out a way to to shoehorn into this Dreamcast, it would be um, Jadzia Dax, because not only is she a smokin' hot babe, but she was a good character. She was a really interesting. She was like the only really interesting character on that show and plus if you had Worf there that could be an interesting dynamic too so yeah I don't know yeah. what the hell position she would she would fill maybe science officer in, in my well no I already said data I don't know I, but it would be interesting to see her you would get it to there. see
3: Worf kick some greasy Klingon ass
2: <laughs> oh yeah that's true <laughs> the smart me Klingons yeah
3: come on peanut head <laughs> you better watch what you say greasy and, and it would just be yeah <laughs> that would be great
2: Ah, uh, but yeah i think i think that pretty much rounds us out and i think uh let me think did that represent oh shit no it didn't represent voyager sorry voyager you lose i guess I can't. Wow, wow. yeah there were there were characters i liked on that but off the top of my head there wasn't any of them i liked uh in the dream team yeah no wait them a minute who did we team, say who did we say is security i said tasha all you know Oh, that's a tough one because I also the, my favorite character on uh, on Voyager was Tuvok, and that was the role he filled on that show. As he was security, that would be that having would be two Vulcans
3: aboard could be very interesting, could be interesting. Also, yeah, I always, or having a full Vulcan and a half Vulcan could be very interesting.
2: I always that wanted could, to see could,
3: Spock. That could and cause two- a real pull. Yeah, that could yeah. pull back and forth from human to yeah to Vulcan. Yeah, because cause Spock's got to pull his own Vulcanness. Spock's the only one like everybody else is mocking his Vulcanness for the most part, or yeah. picking on it at least.
2: Yeah. Well, you know that could be interesting too if it turned out that they, they didn't like each other. You know that that Chuvak looked at him and you know and and found him lacking somehow as a Vulcan. And then Spock's got that added pressure of I've got these humans constantly trying to break me and get right. me to you know get me to smile or cut a joke or whatever. But then I've got Tuvok here constantly watching me and he's on my ass for you know waiting for me to slip kind of thing. Yeah, that could be a very interesting dynamic and add a lot of tension to both of those characters. So yeah, damn, now I want to see this series.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well. In a few years somebody'll be able to whip it up on their computer.
2: There you go. There you go. I'll get my kids to do it.
3: You just ha- you just have to take all your all your Star Trek DVDs, insert them in, it'll take all their vocal samples and their character movements and you can do it just like the Sims.
2: <laughs> well, on the subject of doing it like the Sims, I think we should probably take a break and then uh, All right. We'll come back to uh, what this show's honestly supposed to be
0: about. <laughs> if they refuse to move out on, on cue, screw them. Captain's log, star date four zero four zero point seven. We've run across one of the strangest examples of parallel planet development. What are we seeing? Twentieth century Rome. Don't move. It's been a long time since I've watched barbarians die in the arena. Fight, you poised-eared freak! You're young men dying, not strangers. Do you know why you're not afraid to die, Spock? You're more afraid of living. Let's go.
1: For this evening, I was told I am your slave. Command me.
3: don't let him escape! All right, we're back, and it's back into the land of Star Trek, the original series. Today, our episode is Bread and Circuses. And I'll pass it off to Scott to tell you what it's all about.
2: All right. Well, first off, this episode is written by Gene L. Coon and Gene Roddenberry. So I thought that was nice. uh, of note. And the synopsis for this, straight out of the Star Trek compendium, is Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock, and Dr. McCoy visit planet 892-I guess it's 4, It says uh, it's the Roman numerals IV, I guess it's 4, I don't know, I didn't listen. Anyway, after they discover the wreckage of the SS Beagle, a Federation vessel, (laughs) that just is a funny name to me, I don't know. Anyway, on the surface, they meet a band of primitive-looking people and are then captured by a group of well-armed individuals. Kirk and company learn that the planet is technologically on a par with 20th century Earth. Imagine that. The world's civilization, though, closely resembles that of ancient Rome. Kirk meets Captain Merrick, the former commander of the Beagle, and discovers that Merrick betrayed his own crew, instructing them to beam down so that they could die in the arena. The Beagle's captain is now known as First Citizen Mericus and the Empire's proconsul, Claudius Marcus, is now using him to convince Kirk to beam down the Enterprise crew. McCoy and, and Spock are sentenced to die in the arena and Kirk's execution seems imminent. Scotty, sensing that something is wrong, cuts off the planet's electrical power, enabling Kirk to free Spock and McCoy. Merrick saves the trio... Slipping them a stolen communicator before the pro council stabs him. Back on the Enterprise, Kirk realizes that the persecuted children of the Sun are actually the counterpart of the early Christians, and that's pretty much the the, the lowdown on this particular episode. So, uh,
3: it sure makes sense that Gene Roddenberry probably wrote the story of it because yeah. this is totally his prototype of like we can go to different worlds that are basically just you know analogies of of you know topics that we want to address or or you know like this a a what if situation what if the romans had had you know maintained their status as world leaders up till the 20th century right and of course it's ridiculous when they go oh my god they're speaking english you know yeah you know as if it's a foregone conclusion that that there's like this sort of seed of humanity that if humanities go through a certain, they go through a Roman stage where they develop that language that, does, that doesn't that does really make sense it's weird oh. and the ship that crashes is the SS Beagle which was Charles Darwin's ship.
2: I was thinking that sounded familiar, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah you're uh-huh. right
3: so it's got this weird, it's got this weird you know, I don't know if he meant it but it's got this weird parallel like bizarre idea of human evolution where it's more like A societal evolution as a foregone conclusion that has, you know, it's foregone that we're going to go into the Roman stage, whether that Roman stage falls or not is not a foregone conclusion, but it is is a foregone conclusion that English will develop out of it and be used like that, and television, transistor technology, you know, and it all ends up becoming Exactly like Earth saying that, like, well, that's how humans develop. They develop, right. you know, after a while, their brains start making television sets. And uh, I, th- I thought that was, frankly, ridiculous, ridic- ridiculous. Yeah.
0: It's getting to be ridiculous. Whatever.
3: I'll go along with it for the sake of the story. And frankly,
2: I was prepared for this one to suck. <laughs> and I really liked it. See, you and I are so on the same page with this one because I, I feel exactly the same way. I went into this one really not remembering it very well. And, and like you say, totally prepared for it uh-huh. to suck. And I actually really enjoyed this episode. However, I had one a huge stumbling block in this one, which is they beat you over the head with the parallel Earth thing. And I wish that they had just... Gone for broke and either had it be like the beginning of Miri where they fly up and they go, holy shit, it's Earth, but it's not our Earth or do it like uh like in um oh, God damn it. What's that episode with the Nazi patterns of force? Right. Where because Merrick and his crew crashed there. They influenced it into their
3: style, yeah.
2: So I'm, I'm wondering if maybe Roddenberry, since he had a hand in this, maybe he thought, okay, we've done too many parallel Earth stories where it actually is Earth of another dimension or something let's and twist it around a little bit yeah and we've yeah. also done one too many stories where somebody from earth crashes and influences the the you know the civilization like patterns of force and like the one with mel from you know alice's restaurant you know that one uh, what the hell is the name of that one piece of the action where oh, everybody's a gangster yeah. because they got that mm-hmm. gangster book from the 20s so mm-hmm. i can see him not wanting to keep repeating that but then to come up with this concept that, wow, these people developed exactly like Earth with English and television and everything, it, it that's that's worse. That's more ridiculous. And it's really, see, the, the thing is, I can, like you, I can go along with a gag and I can buy the whole Roman thing. I can buy the whole television thing. I can buy the whole thing of, you know, they're so close to 20th century. The, the point where it jumps the shark in the credibility point for me is why the hell do they even bother to say, oh my God, they're speaking English. Every freaking planet they go to speaks English or seems to because they employ the universal translator. So why bring that up? I mean, it's really a point that doesn't need to come up. You know, it it really hurts the credibility of, of what you're trying to push on me, which is that, wow, this planet is really, really similar to Earth. When you start doing the... Oh my gosh, it's so similar. They're speaking English. Then you jump. It goes yeah. to the point of you just going, "Oh God," you know. Well,
3: but, I think this one was late in the season, so they had less money, right? So they were so. So of course, I've got a better name for the planet. I've got two, either Planet of the Backlots or Planet <laughs> of the Earth Props.
2: <laughs> I That's like
3: that. You know, the all the cops have motorcycle helmets. You know, like just white motorcycle helmets on you could even get the little clips where you put the visors on them and stuff and
2: but yeah I'll, but i'll tell you you know with with my big nitpick out of the way there's a lot to like in this episode oh, I yeah think. a whole it's, lot to like and the no, biggest it's all thing,
3: the character oh yeah um interaction is awesome in this you know it's got it all
2: yeah this is, this is a great Spock-McCoy episode.
3: Yeah, I thought they were going to make out in the prison cell. <laughs> Jesus Christ, McCoy's like right in his face, just like, Spock- rah, rah. Come on, man, Before we, we both, die,
2: I've always loved you, Spock. They're both sweating- <laughs> <laughs> That's twisted, but no, I really like the the moment you know when when McCoy gets kind of pissed at him and throws him against the wall, and he's like, "Kind of, pissed, you're yeah. afraid to live, Mister." You know, I liked that. I, I really enjoyed and then at that. The, but, and then at the end, he's like,
3: "I'm I'm afraid for Jim too," you know.
2: Yeah. Well, then, that 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 is mirrored much later on, you know, in that uh, what is it? I think it's the Tholian web where they think the captain's dead. And they have to listen to the the tape that Kirk left behind and yeah. have that little moment where, you know, McCoy says something like, uh, it hurts, doesn't it? And Spock just is like, you know, what would you have me say, doctor? I, I like that. You know, it, it, this, that, this scene in this one reminded me a lot of that when that comes later, because I really like that episode. Uh-huh. i tell you one of the where this where this episode went from. Me kind of going. I don't know if I'm gonna like this one. Just suddenly I was like, okay, I'm gonna like this one. Is it's got Mr. Atawz in it? I love that guy. Uh huh. I have no idea what the hell that actor's name is, and he's probably. I don't been know. Dead he's just like he's of... just like
3: the doppelganger, the guy who plays my fa- favorite Martian.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, I like him a lot. You know, he he's in another. You know, he plays Mr. Atawz in another episode, and I think he might even be in another episode still, but I can't remember. But also, uh, he was he was a bit actor in. Um, Houdini with uh, uh, Tony Curtis back in the day. You know, so that movie's in, the, I think, the 50s, 50s or 60s. Great, great movie. And he's in that. And I remember watching that a few years ago, and I was like, holy shit, that's Mr. Atos. Anytime I see that guy, I don't know why. And I just get a real, well, he, he tickles me. I, he's a good the,
3: actor, and I like him. The big burly guy who played the head um, Roman guard, mm-hmm. I think he played a Roman guard in probably Mel Brooks' History of the World Part 1. <laughs> I swear to God, when the, when when Kirk runs up on him and he's like, you know, we'll do a special on you. Oh, yeah. Totally, that totally, I mean, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, this is a Mel Brooks movie. though it, it, His delivery of it, I'm like, that guy was in a Mel Brooks movie. He just had that whole, uh, it was hard to take him seriously after that, after I saw that. I just thought of him as like this goofy Harvey Cormans type, character he
2: actually looks a little bit like him too
3: i think this episode was supposed to be roddenberry doing a caution i think he wanted to do a cautionary tale about television and nowadays television has gone so beyond <laughs> his cautionary tale that to me it's more of a story about the weird you know progression of society and then the weird weirdo ending at the end are the stuff that 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 resonates in the story more to me besides I, you know what what i really like about this are the character moments are you know it's it's a lot of scenes of the characters doing their thing jim kirk you know plying the his you know old starfleet friend or the person he he knew from starfleet and trying to figure out where he's coming from and trying to get him out of the situation and and working the um pro council and you know in the in the interplay between Spock and McCoy and, and him and I love Scotty getting a whole you know getting uh getting a little gun crazy and getting a little power hungry at just but you know he really takes command of the enterprise he's like I know we're not supposed to do this but we can do this he starts taking a little page out of Kirk's book and I love I love those moments and th- right. those are the moments that really make Star Trek oh yeah you know so it doesn't need any special effects or monsters or any weird you know this is literally just one made and i and and there's a lot of shots in tv studios and stuff so it's stuff that they had hanging around right (laughs) you know the set (laughs) to make this you know i mean obviously just about every shot in this movie is a set or a backlot you know obviously you know right down to the the gladi the gladiatorial fights they don't even try to make a TV or you know I mean you know what it would be like nowadays if in the twentieth century if we really had gladiatorial fights they'd have a nice arena oh yeah you know and you know instead of a TV studio with not a drop of like dried blood on the floor
0: it's like <laughs> I'm looking
3: at the floor going that floor is kind of carpeted actually you know how they <laughs> <laughs> How are they going to clean up after these death, you know, death battles, you know, that seem to, you know, they start out with just an execution just to start them out.
2: So and uh, I, but you didn't so see were, blood on TV. I mean, even like the Westerns right. and stuff, you know, gun smoke, you know, oh, you got right. Marshall Dillon shoots a guy from a foot away, and you know, with a gun that should blow a fucking hole through the guy. And he and just all goes, oh, you like, got me, Marshall yeah, falls dead. It's like, come on. <laughs> they clutch uh
3: the cuz they have their hand clutched over that spot you know yeah, but exactly. yeah you know i okay I, I i get all that but you know it just it doesn't it doesn't you know this this episode really has a lot fighting against you taking it seriously like spot paging through although when he was paging through the magazine and found the Jupiter 8 car and they even had tv ads for the Jupiter 8 brought to you by the Jupiter 8 that was pretty cool and you know you saw the ads and was stuff
2: an UX yeah i like that
3: yeah. And uh, one thing I thought was for all the. For it being like, you know, here's our gladiatorial battle on TV. Man, those newscasters are dry. They're just like, and tonight it's Blobius Maximus against Gluteus Maximus, and it'll be a death match. And. You know, you, you know, it wouldn't be like that. It would be like
2: tonight, 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 tonight. bloodshed in the Sunday, arena. Sunday, Sunday, You have to hit pay for the whole season. <laughs> need
0: the edge, yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs> this show ain't over till we have a four foot pile of
0: guts.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that. <laughs> now, how see, the hell did they truck get jump a pile of guts? How did they ever get Kirk to leave this planet? You've got that smoking hot blonde. Two of her that. lines are "command me," and I'm ordered to please you. And I'm just thinking, all righty then. I like this planet. I'm, I'm, I'm yours. I, I'm, I was told I'm your slave. But notice when she goes,
3: you know, "command me." Kirk looks over his shoulder, almost at the viewer, just like, really? <laughs> Does she know what she's
1: asking?
3: <laughs> it's great because he's he's a, he's a commander. You know, he's ready to command and. He knows how to command a ship too so you know you know and of course it of course it all happens but you know i mean i know he was looking over his shoulder because he thought he was being recorded you know by the um pro council or whatever but that scene just cracked me up she's just like command me and he looks over his shoulder just like are you serious am i a candid camera because i'll command you <laughs> Now, I just don't want to be on camera.
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't think Kirk would care though. I, I really don't God, think. But ultimately well,
3: when it got right down to it, he'd be like, oh, well, it won't be anything he hasn't seen before. wow.
2: <laughs> wow. Now did you notice that uh you know, back in the day, long before, you know, DVD extras or YouTube or hell, even the internet. I remember I owned a grainy, fuzzy, zillionth generation copy of the Star Trek bloopers on videotape. And as I was watching this episode, did you notice that a a huge portion of the classic Star Trek blooper reel actually comes from this one episode? episode? Yeah, a lot of them.
3: Maybe they could afford to shoot extra shots with this one, so they goofed off a little more. I'm just maybe wondering they knew if the maybe, story was so goofy that they <laughs> were, you know, joking around more.
2: I'm just thinking that maybe, you know, for some odd reason this was the one where more of the the footage survived than any of the other ones, you know, that wound up yeah. in the trash or whatever. But I just thought well, that was odd. Well, to to go
3: in the completely other direction of Kirk sleeping with the woman. Don't you think the pro council guy if, A, he had some weird ass wiggly ears. Whenever he talked his ears were wiggling up and down. That was distracting to me. I think he had I think he had his eyes on Kirk. Yeah. I think maybe he liked, you know, I think maybe he liked the first captain first cuz I can't figure out for the life of me what the advantage of him like okay. Um say in some other like the episode with the Nazis. What was it? Uh, Patterns of Force. Yeah. In, in Patterns of Force, this guy takes over using his superior man from the future technology and knowledge. In this, okay, this guy has been, he's number one citizen, but what is it that makes him number? What 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 is the reason for him being number one citizen? Why would the pro, the pro council seems to have running things. He's obviously not a good front man. He needs, you know, the guy's tall and blonde and like blah, blah, blah. But they're Romans. There should be plenty of Roman figureheads he could put in there. What is it that this earth man from the future is doing that makes him powerful to the pro council. It's not like they have, fa- it's not like all of a sudden the head Romans have phasers now and better technology. I just don't see why this guy's, you know, why the pro council wasn't just like, well, you can join our society or was like, you know, fuck you guys and killed them. Right. You know, I don't see how either way, I don't see how either way serves the pro council, you know? And then, and then when he gets a, and then, but there is this weird like jealousy thing because when he starts seeing Kirk and how Kirk acts, he starts getting all these barbs in about Kirk being a real man. Right. And, and, and all this. And, you know, he, you know, he totally has a sweaty man's man little speech about Kirk. I'll have him die like a man. And, you know, gave him a night with a woman and gets all like hot and bothered over him. Which is, you know, very Roman, <laughs> you know, it's it's so, but I just th- found that pretty, that, and, and it was, when I was watching it, I was like, wow, this is like, if this was what they intended to do, it's amazing that they got away with that yeah. sort of subtext in those days, you know, because obviously that would have to be addressed in subtext but i'm thinking you can get away with it because when in rome you're in roman times and well not just everybody, that everybody I mean- knows the romans were kind of like you know kind of like there was a there was a whole it was there was a whole thing ingrained in the philosophy about man and you know platonic love between men and which is the thing that works between spock and kirk is like the two characters love each other platonically but it's like how do two men deal with that and the, the but the romans were a little more a little more light in the loafers about it so so i was i was really amazed that they got that into this episode you know to to add that extra roman you know not they didn't have kirk sitting in the bathhouse with with the pro council just like you know chatting but pretty close to it yeah the, the yeah the pro council was sweating like he was in the bathhouse that's for sure
2: well, I think they got away with it two ways. For one, it, you know, it wasn't until this viewing that I I caught the same thing. So it's something that I definitely you know missed as a kid went right over the oh, yeah. head. But yeah, also, yeah, I mean, this is the this is the kind of thing that you know when when people call Roddenberry a genius, this is the kind of thing they're talking about. Is that yeah. he could take subjects that were absolutely forbidden subjects on television back in the day, like say you know, black, white, race relations, come up with an episode like Let This Be Your Last Battlefield, where he is clearly talking about black, white, race relations. Yeah, with the subtlety of
3: Oliver Stone, you know.
2: And because it is goofy-looking aliens, you know, painted a funny way, and one of them's played by the Riddler, you know, Uh people looked at it and laughed, (laughs) and it was funny, silly science fiction, and it isn't until later that you look back and go, holy shit. This is what this is all about, and I, I didn't even see that, you know? So, yeah, I think, you know, I won't say for sure, but... It's funny that I had the exact same thought that you did that uh, that I think there was a little bit of something, uh, a little bit of man love going on between the pro council and the in the first dude. Yeah, I, I think so too. Cause oh I, yeah, and then and then he and then he he ditched him for Kirk. He was Kirk was his
3: <laughs> Kirk was his uh, Anakin to his Count Dooku. You know, right. well that was the so moment
2: for me where it went from me just kind of going, you know, does that guy seem a little a little girly to. The moment oh, where it's like, yeah. oh, okay, all right, yeah. But <laughs> he, when he tells him, well, you know, now I've got myself a real man with Captain Kirk and Merrick kind of gives him that, that you know, hurt little old <gasps> you know, like yeah. <gasps> runs away crying. I was like, okay, now nah, this isn't my imagination. Maybe that
3: explains why he's the number one citizen.
2: Well, that's what I meant. Yeah. Well, that, I yeah. thought that's where you were going too, was that he was number one citizen because he's the pro council's bitch, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah.
3: <laughs> no, I wasn't going there, but I just put that together because my brain's not, you know, I the the, I actually I'm leaning at like a 45 degree angle, and I think the two brain cells just sort of hit together and sparked a little bit there.
2: <laughs> oh yeah!
3: Oh yeah! yeah subtext
2: well i've got a uh, i 've only got two more quick things on this one for one thing, um this one totally shoots a hole in my uh you know the you don 't need all, class, all seven guys together to make an episode because they are all in this particular episode, which I just happened to to take note of that lastly though and again, this one wasn 't quite the stumbling block the the twentieth century earth speaking English thing was, but it was still a pretty big one was A great big deal is made about the Prime Directive in this episode and how they can't violate it and blah, blah, blah. All right, explain to me, please, somebody, how in the hell was the Prime Directive not already fucking violated in this episode? Right, exactly. I mean,
3: why would it— think you'd be in damage control mode at this time. Exactly.
2: I mean, it's already been broken, hasn't it? With Merrick and his people turning up on that planet, how does the Prime Directive— To a limited extent.
3: Yeah, yeah it's to just the people like the pro council who know who they are, but right. still it's still that's still yeah that's still contamination, so that's... yeah that's i I thought the same thing and then this and the, and then at the end, Kirk leaves, and he's like, you know Merrick's dead and blah blah blah, but what a they they obviously he asked him what the rest of the is like those that lived you know mm-hmm. or those that adapted lived in right. our in the it, which sounds like they adapted semi, you know, just out of survival. So, why is the Enterprise just leaving
2: them there? Right. The Enterprise is like, okay, well, we're done here. I had to get out of here. Sack, no. And, uh, I, I, I even took a peek at the, uh, nitpickers guide after watching this one and they had a, they had an even bigger point. They didn't mention the men, which I thought was interesting because you know, you and I both obviously caught that with, with some of Merrick's people being left behind. But one of the things they mentioned in the nitpickers guide, which, you know what, now that I think about it, I can kind of explain this away. But anyway, but what they mentioned was what about all the equipment that got left behind? (laughs) They they mentioned that, uh, you know, Kirk, Spock and McCoy, had phasers, communicators, Basers. and a tricorder with them that uh-huh. we don't see them take with them at the end of the episode. However, I've always kind of thought you would think with with a rule as big and as important to them as the prime directive in their mandate, that there's probably some kind of doohickey in those devices to where as they're warping out, they would just beam them back or something or self-destruct them or something. But then again, I, you know I don't know. Because you would think that that would be a no-brainer, yet we never see it, we never hear it mentioned, and it seems to me that there was, uh, oh, I know what it is, it's in piece of the action. When they leave, and one of the characters, I think it's McCoy, is fretting and worrying, and Kirk's like, you know, what the hell's wrong with you? And he says, you know what, I think I left my, whatever it was, phaser or communicator or something. Yeah, and you... they just sort of get a laugh over it. Yeah, and they, yeah, they it is. It's like, hey, maybe that'll help them out. yeah. <laughs>
3: So well, it'd be interesting to see what they come up with with that because that and that society was a highly imitative society. Yep. They pick up on th- they pick up on things and want to copy them. Yeah. So that so like you it, it would seem you would want to be 10 times more careful <laughs> with a society like that, right. not to to show your hand or sh- even show yourself. <laughs> so
2: as a matter yeah. of fact, when uh, when the DS9 crew uh, cast, you know, the uh, the the. Series crew, I mean, was coming up with their idea of what were they going to do for whatever anniversary it was that Star Trek was celebrating when they did that episode, Trials and Tribulations, where they went back to Trouble Uh and Tribbles. One of the first ideas that got tossed out before they decided to go with that was that they were going to go back to that planet from a piece of the action and discover that that entire society had again... Adopt, you know, adapted and adopted a new persona where everybody on the planet was either Kirk or Spock. You know, (gasps) acting as Kirk and Spock. That would that would have been awesome. Yeah, that would have been totally cool. So it would have been hilarious. But the idea was it, it would have all spun out of that idea at the end that they had left something behind. I can't remember what it was. It's either a phaser or a communicator, I think, at the end of that episode. But yeah, so that right there makes you think that, well, I guess they they don't have something to where these things, you know, blow up or, or beam back or whatever. So that being the case, yeah, ultimately, my point is you can't fly away at the end and go well all's well that ends well and well no it doesn't because you just contaminated a culture once again (laughs) and and i and i hated that
3: those those two that that coupled with Ahura's speech at the end where obviously they hadn't hadn't communicated well enough in the rest of the story because they really just dropped them after the very beginning the sun followers right they didn't really like you could have communicated that those were the early, and and I'm sure they had little things that were parallels to the early Christians, but they could have. Commu- you know, it seemed like at the end, you know, Jean Coon was probably like, "Well, I don't think people are going to get it. I think it's too subtle." So they had to have Ahura stand up and do a very, you know, she actually gets up and walks over. You know, it's a very public service announcement and kind of seems thrown in. It just, uh, it, it just. Doesn't have the fl- and the music starts playing and she's like, "Don't you guys get it?" Blah 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 and explains it. I thought that was kind of a cop out. I thought they should have communicated
2: that. We have a in listener, the story, we have a listener who is both you know a, a diehard Star Trek fan and uh, I'm not sure what the word would be a, a, a theologian of, of some form or other. I don't want to call the person out in case they're uncomfortable with with bringing this up, but I would love to hear from this person if they don't mind
3: chiming how they in on this handled.
2: Or how they thought it was handled. Because I, I know speaking to him off the air that uh, you know that that he had strong thoughts and, and opinions about this episode, but I. He didn't want to spoil it for me because he knew I hadn't rewatched the episode yet, so we didn't really get thoroughly into the discussion. But now that we, you know, you and I have now that seen, you've it, seen it, you know yeah.
3: where uh, he was going with well, that. No, yeah. no, I
2: really don't, though. I really don't know where he was going. So I would love to to have him chime in and, and really explain, you know, his thoughts and feelings uh, about this particular thing. Because one of the things that threw me at the end with the, uh, you know, we'll call it the Christ reveal at the end. The was, Christ reveal. You know, one of the last lines yeah. in the whole episode was Kirk saying, you know, wouldn't it be great to stick around and watch it all happen again? And they just kind of chuckle and fly off. And I'm thinking, what exactly is he talking about? I hope he doesn't it mean like- the crucifixion. Exactly, is what- <laughs> not just crucifixion, but, you know, the, is he talking about the, 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 the Spanish Crusades. the Crusades, you know, because the history and I am no, you know, Ill, blood I am no yeah. historian. But I'm just saying what little I know about the early History of Christianity, it was a pretty gruesome, turbulent, turbulent
3: and blood soaked. And, and, but you know, and I mean, it wouldn't be out of place for Kirk to say, wouldn't it be, you know, amazing to watch all that, but not with like a beatific smile on his face, (laughs) you know, like that. (laughs) It's just like, no, that's kind of ghoulish, Kirk. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know. I, my, the impression I think they're trying to give you, or at least what I took away as a kid was, when he says, "Wouldn't it be nice to stick around and see it all happen again?" Is that he's talking about some sort of Christianity helped lead to the world of Star Trek? Is kind of what I took away from that. But or, now, as an adult, or took down the Roman
3: Empire. Yeah, something. Yeah, rode the. Road, the- I the roman know. empire
2: i guess I, i'm yeah. just thick or something because i don't quite get it. no i think it wasn't written i i think
3: there were too many things sort of thrown into this pot and and none of them could be were that's why i think <laughs> you know that i think that it was obviously important to roddenberry or the writer you know because roddenberry could have wrote wrote two paragraphs about this right you know they go a roman times you know, and this one guy's first citizen, you know, go from there and Gene L. Kuhn fleshed it out. That's probably more and right. Roddenberg gets writing credit for it. But it 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 just seems like they, they definitely wanted to get that point across to the point of where they had to insert it in at the end just to make sure you got it. But there were all sorts of things going on in here that, you know, you could have you know, critique of T V and uh, you know, um, uh, parallels to you know modern society and it and, and it all just sort of none of it satisfactorily. Exp- I don't know if you want to say explained or or doesn't or fleshed out maybe is right. more of what I would think. But you know, no- at, at the same point, I just I love this episode. I I I, I watched it and I was going through it going. Man, I'm so relieved. I'm enjoying the hell out of this. There's mm-hmm. some great acting in it and uh it's it's just it's sort of classic. It's sort of very classic Star Trek in a lot of ways. And it's one of the ones that's really super true to Gene Roddenberry's vision. You oh, know? Yeah. yeah. It's it's definitely a very Roddenberry Star Trek with all the pros and cons that
2: come along with that, but I'll take them, you know? Yeah. I I agree with you. I enjoyed this one a lot more than I anticipated. And you know, now I really want to see, there's another episode that is in the same vein for me where I didn't remember it very well as far as the details. And I only remembered not liking it, but now I've got to watch it again because it seems to me just from my limited remembrance of it, that it's almost the same goddamn episode is the Omega Glory? Isn't that another one about like an Earth-like planet with you know? Well, that that one doesn't end in Jesus. That one
3: ends in the the Constitution. Yeah, you know, you know, it ends with the you know with Yankee Doodle being played in the background. Right, but, but I, yeah, it's the same idea. It's very and it's a very Roddenberry-like.
2: Yeah, but I mean, Van Gelder plays a uh, a captain in that one, and he's like contaminated the planet or some shit, yeah. right? Yeah, it's just the same damn thing. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, they re they reuse ideas a lot yeah. in Star Trek. That's for sure.
2: That's tr- that's, uh, that's for sure.
3: It well, works for me.
2: That's all I got on
3: this one. All right, we'll be back with some DC Comics Mirror Universe
1: Star Trek. Sweet. While attending a demonstration in radiology. Student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider, which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers, and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man,
0: Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can.
1: Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web-slinger, the Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Reilly should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at amazingspiderman.libson.com Life is a great big
0: Wherever there's a hang-up,
1: you'll find
0: the Spider-Man! S-S-S-S-U You can dance like Zulu Hello. and shake your little behind. Yes. you got to give it a chance when you do the Zulu dance and your friends will say, Oh my. <laughs> See, jump around if you want to and move your arms like a machine. Yes. If you do the Zulu dance while wearing tight pants, some people may call you a queen. queen. The Zulu dance. Zulu, Zulu. Just fine. Zulu, Zulu. Now, that's ridiculous. Sulu dance is fun to do, well, but your girl may get jealous. No. Because if you abuse it, your girl will lose it and run up and say... Who is this? Ah, you can dance like Sulu. You know. But some may choose to not. No. You've got to give it a chance when you do the Sulu dance, and your girl will give up the... Balloon Dot. C- I see. Yes. Sulu dance. Yes. Sulu dance. Yes. What you say when you answer the phone. Hello. Sulu dance yes. Sulu dance yes. I wanna dance We're having a ball Thank you very much Sulu dance yes. Sulu dance yes. Everybody will sing and laugh <laughs> Sulu dance yes. Sulu dance yes. Shake that big bulge in your pants No pants. Thank you It's a Sulu dance You know It's a Sulu dance Thank you It's a Sulu dance Oh my It's a Sulu dance Yes, yes. It's a Sulu dance Yes It's a Sulu dance Yes it's a solo dance! Yeah. It's a solo dance! <laughs> now that's ridiculous.
3: All right, we're back and we're going to go back in time to the future to March 1985 for Star Trek Comics from DC number 12. And I'm going to pass it off to Scott Gardner. Thank you. To tell you what happened. <laughs> all right or is what is going to happen
2: here's the skin in time <laughs> issue number 12 written by uh, mike w Barr, tom sutton and ricardo Villagran are the artists and they also supplied the awesome cover on this one i really like this one it shows uh the Enterprise attacking the much larger uh, Excelsior. and It's just a really nice dynamic cover. I, I really like the way these guys uh, draw the ships. They really get the ships very nice, you know, very, uh, very close to how they really look. Anyway, this one, uh, the story is entitled The Tantalus Trap. Okay, so Kirk is in a panic because he and his people have stolen the Mirror Enterprise, only to find that it has been set to blow up by Mirror Kirk and the countdown has already begun. But as always, this is James T. Kirk we're talking about and he has a plan. He orders Scotty to transfer all power to the batteries and all crew members to evacuate to the saucer section of the Enterprise. Meanwhile, on Vulcan, The two Spocks remain locked in a mind-mell battle until eventually only one of them remains. But we don't know which one. On Excelsior, Mirror Kirk watches with delight as the Enterprise and presumably all of our heroes are destroyed when the self-destruct countdown reaches zero and the ship goes kablooey. But... His joy is short-lived as we see the saucer section of the 1701 come barreling out of the explosion headed straight for the bad guys. Quick work by Scotty and Savick ties the Tantalus field into the ship's power and Kirk utilizes the device to take out Excelsior's power supply, leaving them in the dark and without sensors. Kirk leaves our charge and he and some men including dr mccoy donned spacesuits and board the excelsior kirk's people gas the mirror universe folks and retake the ship but mirror kirk is waiting for them kirk being the macho man that he is says i got this one and the two eagle maniacs throw down it's kirk versus kirk the way it was meant to be through his mastery of kirk foo Our hero wins the day, and the Mirror dudes are all put into stasis. Kirk contacts Grand Admiral Turner, and Defying Orders once again tells his superior officer that he is taking Excelsior into the Mirror universe to put a stop to all this shit right now. But first, he detours long enough to pick up the uh, DC-exclusive cast members that got kind of abandoned and sidetracked a while back, right around the time of... uh, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. So with a full complement, finally, a full crew, it's full speed ahead into the other dimension. And at the end, we witness the Klingon bird of prey arrive, but it is, quote, too late. And uh, wow, I liked this issue. It was really solid. Yeah. And, I, and I like that even though the story kind of resolved kind of quick, that it's not really over there's there's still more stuff going on you know it wasn't just a okay we defeated the bad guys. story over it, it, this is just leading into you know a bigger thing because now they're going to turn the tables by going to the mirror universe i thought that was really cool
3: yeah that's a neat plot device because you can sort of have a mirror image of that of yeah yeah you get to show both sides of it so to speak and who knows who's living over in the mirror universe you know so there's going to be all sorts of other characters that we might be able to run into in the in the mirror universe i imagine and uh and we'll get to see the empire in action too which will be really cool doesn't there was a i mean there was like one part where you know where the the good spock is trying to lure the other spock into you know fighting the empire and joining the good side it was very star warsy
2: right
0: and yeah
3: very luke and Vader like <laughs> sort of where you know they had their little you know you are like me i'm not like you and right you know, that sort of thing but yeah i i love this issue too you know who i mean i always like it when a kirk fight breaks out <laughs> <laughs> you know if there's going to be more than one kirk you get you got to have a kirk fight yep and it happens and and you know yeah and exactly kirk's like I'll take
2: this one. And it's great. And he boxes his ears. you know. (laughs) Now, one thing I noticed, I don't know that I noticed this necessarily the first time I read this, but of course that was a long time ago, so I don't really remember. But uh, I noticed at the end of the story that the Excelsior has the surviving saucer section of the Mirror Enterprise in tow. And I would love to find out down the road that in the dc comics continuity that that saucer section gets incorporated into the replacement enterprise that kirk would eventually get that would be a really neat little piece of uh
3: well it also means that now they've got the
2: tantalus technology too oh that's right that's right yeah i'm kind of wondering what what eventually comes of all this because i remember the scene of the saucer section flying out of the debris field and all that but i thought and maybe this will play out later on, but I thought there was another scene of that saucer going into battle. So maybe eventually it does get destroyed somewhere down the road. I really, I I can't remember.
3: God, if the Klingons want the Genesis device, just think of when they get a load of the uh, Tantalus
2: field. Oh yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. So, I did have one. Pretty big nitpick with this one, but I, I don't know. You judge whether you think it's a big nitpick or not, because I, I can kind of explain my way around it. But uh, I, I think that there was confusion on the writer's part to exactly how the self destruct sequence of the Enterprise works, because there's a part in this where Kirk asks Savick, uh, let me see if I can find it here. It's on page two, right at the beginning of page two. He says, Savik, how else does this self-destruct sequence differ from ours quickly? And she says, destruction is caused by joining matter and antimatter fuel without benefit of the intermixed chamber, sir, causing, and he says, an explosion of tremendous proportions. And she says, precisely. Now, all right, this is just me applying my what little I can remember this whole thing. But to my mind, what she's talking about is the destruct sequence that Scotty refers to in Star Trek, the motion picture. Remember, there's that part where as Kirk and the others leave the ship, he calls back to Scotty and he issues general orders such and such. I can't remember what the number is. And this girl walks up to Scotty and says, why has the captain ordered self-destruct? And Scotty says, because he knows that when the ship goes up, we're going to take the intruder with it. Because what he's talking about is a specific you know, she, he's talking about what Savic is talking about right here, where you mix matter and antimatter together and it makes this just hellacious explosion that'll take out stuff for like sectors, right? Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the destruction of the of the Enterprise, as we saw, like in Star Trek Three, where where Kirk delivers the order. And the ship counts down, it's kind of the difference between like you can destroy a nuclear weapon in a conventional explosion and you get a non-nuclear detonation. Right? right, right. But if you actually employ the weapon, you get a nuclear explosion. It's kind of the same thing. So you can destroy the Enterprise without that matter, antimatter explosion happening, which is exactly what we saw happen in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. We saw the ship blow up and then you know burn up in the atmosphere. If it had been this type of explosion that Savick's talking about, that's a whole different deal. That probably would have taken out like half the Genesis planet or or maybe the entire planet. Because it's supposed, you know, Scotty over the years has talked that explosion up as just being like the biggest yeah. since a sun. Going it would
3: have out. at least done something to the uh, to the Excelsior.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it would have taken I would think that it would have taken them out, too. You know, but they didn't seem out. too
3: worried about that. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, because the saucer section just comes kind of floating out of it. If it had been that actual matter, matter, antimatter explosion, they, they wouldn't have survived. So, like I say, it's, it's a nitpick, but I felt that it was worth pointing out because there is a difference in those two explosions. And basically, uh, you know, Savic kind of got the whole thing wrong. I, I think what. What they might want to do somewhere down the line is uh, is amend that. Like, and this may have been done. I don't know. I know this story has been reprinted down, you know, later on, but just kind of amend what Savick says, or maybe even take that out altogether. Because exactly what she describes doesn't ever happen. It's not right. the story plays out. So it's. I found that kind of amusing. Um, I also like the the complete irony of uh, Mirror Kirk's assertion that. Our Kirk would never destroy his Enterprise simply to take out an enemy, which is exactly uh-huh. what Kirk did yeah. for the Enterprise. I thought just that was,
3: recently, <laughs> yeah,
2: not long before this story at all. So I thought that was really cool.
3: Well, I like that this shows that the um, Mirror Kirk is is very essentially flawed, and right. he doesn't, you know, he doesn't like. And the same thing happened in the original series when he was on there. He was in the brig in a second, you know, his ways work. Fine in his world, but when he gets outside into the other dimension, he's he, he's just too chaotic, you know. That's why right. the uh, that's why you know our Kirk is is superior because he's tempered that enough to to you know keep him out of trouble.
2: <laughs> I wonder sometimes looking at these comics and and well any of this old Star Trek material, you know, be it the comics or some of the older novels or what if uh, sometimes later series and later writers would borrow stuff because there's a scene, it's that great double uh, double splash page on pa- pages five and six of the two Spocks locked into that mind meld battle and uh-huh. they're both seeing each other's memories and how they're, they have differences and similarities. There's that great section where it shows the mirror Spock torturing this little alien guy
3: yeah in a in a little glass yeah tube yeah
2: it reminded me a lot there's a that great two part episode toward the end of uh the run of uh Enterprise where it takes it all takes place in the mirror universe and the mirror flocks is like this evil kind of guy and he does stuff like this he tortures aliens and he specifically tortures a uh atholian to death and it just kind of reminded me of this scene right here and i almost wonder if maybe that owes back somehow or something like that you know that that maybe the the guys on that looked back at some of these mirror universe stories and borrowed ideas or something be interesting to find out very possible i would think there was a comment by mccoy that didn't make any sense to me let me see if i can find it yeah it's at the top of page eight when uh you know, Kirk has laid his plans. Everybody's been evacuated, or, or presumably everybody's been evacuated to the saucer section. The countdown is right about the 30-second mark, so, you know, it's, it's getting really close. And uh, McCoy says, Jim, what about the crew? Even if your plan works, most of them will die. And Kirk says, I know that, doctor, but there's nothing we can do about it uh but if it's worth anything i'll see that the counterpart of my, i'll see that counterpart of mine pay what what the hell are they talking about are they talking I, about I, their own know,
3: crew no i thought the same thing and i think what they're t- talking about is the crew of the mirror enterprise that there would still be a full complement of mirror crewmen in it I had to read it like three or four times to to try to figure out what was going on, and I think what he was saying is that 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 ship was still full of of crew members.
2: Well, where are they, and what uh, are they, they doing?
3: I don't know. They're not. They're they're definitely not trying to take their ship back. That's yeah. for sure. And well, doesn't follow to me. And the implication with McCoy is that Kirk has some responsibility to save him, and Kirk didn't even start the destruct sequence. Mirror Kirk did. Oh, that's true, yeah. So, you know, he's just damage controlling, you know. You know, what about the crew, you know? What are we going to do? You know, they were going to get blown up anyway. You know, but I don't... Weren't they towing this Mirror Enterprise behind or something? or, Or they... No, no, they... Yeah, it it doesn't make sense, but I guess there was a crew full of mirror slobs. It's like in it's like oh that no, gang
2: no. Clerks. I remember uh, remember Kirk and you know good Kirk and his people. They they got the Enterprise because they tricked the the mirror guys, the you know the lower ranking guys, into thinking that they were mirror kirk and crew remember oh you're that, right so you're that's right. why those guys aren't fighting to get the ship back or or you know why they're not putting up a because t- they don't realize that the kirk, oh. that, that that good kirk has oh well, if i
3: was kirk i'd be like fuck those guys
2: <laughs> i think that's pretty much what he's saying yeah <laughs> he says i know that doctor but there's nothing we can do he's pretty much saying, i'm not but i'll make about those obscure,
3: yeah he's basically saying it's on mirror kirk's shoulders and yeah. i'll make sure that he pays yeah but Yeah, because, yeah, there's really nothing he could do to mount a rescue operation to, yeah, fuck them, man. They're just mirror universe assholes. (laughs) Well, come on, face it, man. They are assholes. Oh, yeah. They're always making asses out of themselves.
2: Now, this, at the time this comic came out, was a big deal about the saucer sep. Now it's kind of you know it's kind of old news today because you know, right. eventually get that on next gen you know over and over and over again, you know right with the very first episode of next Gen and then uh, you know the last appearance of that enterprise in generations, we got a saucer set, so it was done quite a few times, but at this time this this was a big deal and it was really cool and so, it is
3: cool, but really, do you think if if for the, for the reasons that you would auto destruct? A ship that it wouldn't auto destruct the saucer too. Well, I, you know
2: what i always assumed that they did was that there was some sort of like explosive bolts or something and so it's not so much that the saucer is surviving the explosion unscathed It's like they like jettisoned away in enough time to like ride the explosion away or so you know what i'm saying
3: yeah well kirk actually says like ride he's like don't fight it ride the way oh does he say that Something like that, oh, okay. yeah. Something I was just to making that, ex-
2: that analogy up, but I didn't realize he actually. Yeah, no, said... he
3: actually says something like that.
2: Oh, you're right. Yeah, he does. The top of page ten, he says, "Ride the shockwaves, don't fight them." Yeah, so that was the impression I had was that it was kind of a, because uh, uh... now I He's had the impression now. of of explosive bolts because to my to my knowledge, the only other time this ever came up, and and if if somebody else knows better, please uh, write in and let me know. But I remember there being a book that I loved as a kid. It was called Blackfire. It was one of the early, um, whatever that book line was. That was put, Timescape, I think. That was putting Timescapes out all those early or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And I can't remember very much about the story now. But one of the things I remember was that the Enterprise um, it gets destroyed or really blasted up or something in that story, and they end up having to do a saucer sep in that book. And I remember thinking, wow, that was a really cool cool idea. So reading this story in the comics, you know, after that, it felt like a natural, you know, continuation of that idea. And so somewhere, either in this story or in Blackfire, I got the idea that the saucer sep wasn't something, you know, like in Next Generation, their Enterprise, that was like an actual feature of the ship that it could separate and reattach and it was no big deal. Whereas this was more like... um. You know, like on, on our real spacecraft, there are certain things that they can do, but once they did it, they wouldn't be able to put their ship back together. You know, like with explosive bolts, kind of, you know, like when they used to blow the doors off the old Apollo capsules at the end of the mission, you know, stuff like that. So my understanding is that this saucer set thing is is more of an emergency feature, you know, like if they had to ditch, basically. Right. So. I don't know exactly where I was going with all that. <laughs> I feel like I'm over-explaining the whole thing, but anyway, my my bottom line is I thought it was cool. I, I still like the idea of even Kirk's era ship being able to yeah. to separate like that. I think that's that's neat, and I'm glad that that was, you know, eventually brought into the later series. And uh, that's still one of my my absolute favorite Star Trek moments ever. Was in generations where we see the uh, the saucer crash. We see it under.
3: actually happen, yeah.
2: That was just oh god, that was cool, so cool in the theater. Well, I I think the
3: artwork in this this issue is particularly consistent and and better than usual.
2: It was a little better. You're right. Yeah. I
3: I I, I thought all the people were rendered better than they usually were.
2: The coloring uh, is still a little funny, but um, yeah. there were a cou- couple coloring mistakes, which has got to be tough with such a huge cast and so many of them mirroring each other. but I still thought they did a great job, but what I really liked, I liked the sequence where they're um they were doing the uh the evAC suits and leaving the saucer section of the enterprise uh-huh. going over to the excelsior because most everybody has a different color suit, and somehow, I really thought that worked, you know you got. Kirk with the orange suit and McCoy in the green suit and then the I'm assuming that way you could tell them apart
3: without seeing their faces too yeah
2: but it also kind of lends in a little bit yeah they are like Power Rangers but it also kind of lends in a little bit to the color coding of the uh, of the different departments so I thought that was cool you know with Kirk or with uh, McCoy having the green uh, the green suit for like the medical department I don't know it really I, I thought it looked really dynamic I really liked that and uh, I love, you know, the sometimes the little humor moments don't come off right. And then other times they're like spot on. And I really like the moment where uh, after they've survived everything and Kirk realizes that they've got the upper hands, you know, if they can take advantage of the moment, he runs off the bridge. And he said, you know, because everybody else is going to take part, you know, in the in the assault on Excelsior, he says, "Ahura, you have the con." And as she sits down in the command chair, she yeah. says, well, better late than never. I love that, you know, that, that she finally got her turn in the big chair. And it's also kind of ironic because uh, in, uh, in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, doesn't she get – she gets left a con in, in that movie at least once, doesn't she? So you go from her never getting to sit in the big chair in – the original series to like here on their very first adventure in the new continuity. She gets, she gets handed the con right away.
3: Now, one thing I didn't understand here is after they wipe out the Excelsior with the Tantalus field, it's, it's on that same page. He's, you know, what happened? And someone's like, Oh, that Tantalus field just nearly did a send. How do they know that? <laughs> How do they know the Tantalus field did that? You know, it, it would it look it just appears like you know part of engineering explodes basically, you know they screw it looks like something failed and and then exploded, and uh, but you know and and I'm looking at it and I'm like no this is all sort of in real time, and uh, you know nobody gives them the information that the Tantalus field did anything so I don't know how they know that probably because the writer knew it. Could, that's all i can figure out where
2: where is that at? i'm trying to find that sequence it's on
3: the page. it's on the same page where he gives a con to Uhura. so one of the mirror guys knows that uh now sulu fire phasers and he's like no power available for weapons oh so the yeah he'll nearly descend he's like really how do you know that Sulu? yeah you're <laughs> right
2: you're right oh good catch i totally missed that you're absolutely right yeah how the hell does he know that I mean. Oh wait, wait, wait! That's not the mirror. That's not the mirror, guys. Though that's our guy.
3: Oh, then I'm just stupid. Oh, they have no, they the Tantalus field drained their power yeah. to shoot them, so that's why they have to go ship to ship. Yeah. Okay,
2: that's what it is. Well, it's you know that that also lends into why why would Kirk? I'm assuming that Excelsior is still loaded with our guys, you know, with good guys, you know, Federation right. guys, the same way that, that the Enterprise, Mirror Enterprise was loaded with Mirror guys. So does Kirk really want to go shooting up the Excelsior? Right. There's probably way more crew and, you
3: know, yeah. compliment on the Excelsior, I'm sure. Yeah. It's huge.
2: So, yeah, you you ended up catching sort of a funny thing. One way or the other, because yeah, I don't. Why, what's the advantage of shooting up the the Excelsior? I mean, in the long run, the best thing to do is what they did: storm over yeah. there and retake the Just ship. Just gas
3: everybody and yeah, gas everybody and let the the medical crew sort them out.
2: Now, this this again goes into one of those. You know, okay, there's a new movie out, and we have to keep reminding people about the new movie, but. At this point, I'm really, really, really tired of the whole the needs of the many thing. It seems like this is constantly coming back up because there's a little moment towards the end where Kirk initially tells Turner that he wants to take the ship back to Vulcan because he knows that that's where Mirror Spock and the other missing Mirror counterpart guys went
3: Yeah, and McCoy, like, talks him out of it using that.
2: Yeah, and he says, you know, yeah, I realize he's your friend, but, you know, needs of the many, blah, blah, blah. And then that's when Kirk changes tactics and says, you know what? Never mind. We're going to go over to the mirror universe and kick their asses. So I like that, but I would have liked to have seen a different reasoning. You know, just simply, you know. I think at that point, you know,
3: after all these years, it's – just we've seen it more so it's a little more annoying. I don't think it was as annoying at the time.
2: Probably not. To have yeah. those
3: references cuz we were younger and those were I, I you know I think those references are are cooler a lot of times. You know, fresh after the movies have come out, you know. This is true. And when you're like a teenager reading it and it's like, "Oh, cool, a reference to the movies."
2: And right. nowadays <laughs> Now we're jaded old bastards, yeah.
3: Well, they they nowadays actually things are even more referential, but just in different ways. It's right. almost more annoying nowadays the way they do it. But this was sort of the early, startings of being self-referential and and stuff like that. Right. Well.
2: I'll tell you one. I I forgot to make a note of this, but something I was really excited about. Strangely, I I really thought that this was cool, and I'm I'm glad that they did it. Was that just before they set out for the Mirror Universe at the end, they made a pit stop to get all the. Uh, I, yeah. I called them in my then summary, I called Klingon. them the DC exclusive cast members because I wasn't exactly sure what to call them, but it was like, you know, Bryce and Bearclaw and Konam, the Pussified Klingon, and all those other guys. I like that because those are the guys that add a little bit of something to the cast, but also. You know, they're they're the guys that I'm hoping will add a little bit of the drama and suspense as far as you know, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Bearclaw beam down to the planet. You know, who yeah. might die, kind of thing. You know,
3: so yeah, and and it also, you know, you might need those guys. Who knows where the movies are going to go? So you're going to need exactly. those guys someday. So yeah. might as well keep them in there and develop them and and all that.
2: You know, I just thought of something, you know, again, crossing the streams, but I can't help it. In a way, what we're doing with this show in this era we're covering and and with these, you know, these extra characters being added. It's going to feel a lot like what we're covering in Star Wars Monthly Monday with those comics being between Empire and Jedi we're going to start to see a lot of extra, you know extra yep. characters introduced in that for the same exact reason they weren't yep. sure where the movies were going to go, so they had to give us other characters to play with that they could do their own thing with. I, I like that actually.
3: It's a it's sort of a necessity. Yeah, <laughs> the situation.
2: But in, in both instances, I think that we you know the benefit, the payoff is that we get some really interesting new characters in there. You know, we get some that. We might not be so crazy about like uh, you know like Konam and and Jacks on the rabbit, but in the same you know respect, we get some guys that actually do turn out to be pretty cool and become fan favorites of one sort or another so I think that 's really cool yeah, don 't pick on Jacks on the rabbit I <laughs> use <laughs> just an example I was throwing out there as someone who polarizes fandom, you know yeah, but uh, I would be remiss if i didn 't point out my last thing. For this issue, the thing that while it has absolutely nothing to do with Star Trek, makes this a truly awesome, awesome issue. And that is opposite page 10. We have an ad for my favorite comic book event thingy of all time. This is, it says, the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. 50 years. Worlds will live. Worlds will die die and that's only the beginning DC Universe Crisis on Infinite Earths the DC Universe will never be the same Holy I shit. love this ad and I'm, I've always wondered if there was actually a promo poster made from this page because if there is I would love to own that because I am a Crisis on Infinite Earths freak and, uh, but yeah I saw that as when I turned the page to that I was like <gasps> Awesome. Awesome. So <laughs> yes, I, I I just really like that. Also, I was just noticing on the page before that I, I totally missed this the first time. I guess just didn't pay much attention to it. Is uh, an ad for the uh D C heroes role playing game, the superpowers game. I actually bought that. It was expensive as hell back in the day, cost me a fortune, and I've never once played the game. I just bought I was just, it.
3: Sad. I think I have it. I think I picked it up for like a buck at a garage oh sale once. God. <laughs> and because uh, I was like, I could sell this on eBay. And then I went on eBay and go, oh, maybe not.
1: <laughs> now,
2: that's the one with a, uh, it's got a, a Perez cover that's sort of aping Crisis on Infinite Earths, right? It's like, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. It's a big white box. Yep. Well, you know, what's funny is that came out. Right about the time Crisis came out, and like I say, sports that awesome Perez Crisis-style cover, yet at the conclusion of Crisis, all the stats that are in that were, were rendered obsolete, you know, because most of the characters got some you know altered origin well, then they and, could
3: sell update books to go along with <laughs> yeah, it there you, you go. Know, that's that's the magic that's what those role-playing games are for <laughs> you make the basic module and then you can just or you know the framework and then you can add modules to it and you know so you you have to constantly get new stuff
2: and in, yeah uh, and there's actually some that's really good get, ads yeah. in this in this particular issue but the last one uh that kind of tickled me was uh the on the on the lat on the back cover you've got an, uh, an ad for the uh commodore 64 activision now there's some power game. for you yeah and you know it's so ironic that you know just what it was about a year or so ago the ghostbusters came back with a with a video game for what was it for like xbox 360 or something so you yeah
3: to- they were making a big deal about it and then i heard it wasn't that good when it actually came out oh really Yeah, they were making a big deal about how cutting edge and state of the art it was going to be, and how, you know, the 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 standard thing, you know, we're going to make this a continuation and not just a rehash of the movie, and it'll be like an expanded experience, and you know, we've got all this going on. I heard it wasn't that fun to play.
2: It's just unfortunately, it's just funny to think, you know, here's this ad in 1984 for such a primitive system, Commodore 64. And then to think, you know, here we are, twenty six years later, and Ghostbusters is still around, still putting out video games. It's They're just...
3: talking about making Ghostbusters three.
1: Yeah, uh,
2: I don't, I don't. You think that's ever really going to happen, though? Those guys have got to be getting up
3: there. Bill Murray has said his it's already been signed, written, and huh. directors have been cho- chosen, and the it's about a new generation of ghostbusters but it also (laughs) but it also has all the original cast too it's so it'll so maybe the generations of ghost ghostbusters generations
2: there you go i'd probably see it
3: i think before we veer off anymore we should get ourselves (laughs) back on the star trek track and maybe take a little break and come back with star trek the next generation
0: People are dying, Dad! You've got to come up with a solution! Not me.
1: I'm not a scientist. I'm a hack. Even if I found a solution, those people would still all hate me.
0: Well, that doesn't matter! I learned something from the Stations of the Cross. See, at first Jesus was all like, why me? And he was all pissed off and stuff. But then he saw that what mattered most was everybody else, so he stopped thinking about his own misery and did what had to be done. Right as Jesus was dying, he raised his hand and said, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few.
1: You're right, Stanley. You're absolutely right. Hey, that Bible sounds like kind of a good book.
0: It ain't bad. You should try reading it sometime. Dude, that was Star Trek again. Huh? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few? That was Wrath of Khan. Oh, well, Bible, Wrath of Khan, what's the difference? Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation... They certainly are a fit. ...the crew visits a planet of sensual pleasure. What? Death? By breaking any law. But an innocent violation... No! With Wesley's life in jeopardy. Drop it now. And despite everyone's rescue attempts, he's being held safely until sunlight. He faces an alien death sentence on Star Trek the Next Generation. No! 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 All right, we're
3: back with our coverage of Star Trek The Next Generation in quote unquote chronological order. This time it's the episode called Justice, and I'll let Scott Gardner once again oh. give you the poop. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I will just say right out of the gate, love, love this episode, and you'll you'll find out why shortly. Anyway, the skinny with this one is the pastoral planet of Rubicon 3 beckons after the Enterprise delivers a party of colonists to the nearby... Ugh, I don't even know how you pronounce this word. S-T-R-N-A-D system? I S-T-R-N-A-D? I don't know. Anyway, it's not important. Rubicon's healthy people, the Edo, and their ways of love and open sensual pleasure make this planet seem like the perfect R&R stop. But trouble looms in paradise after Wesley inadvertently chases a ball into one of the Edo's already shifting forbidden zones, drawing the planet's simple punishment for every crime. Death! Dr. Crusher is furious, but Picard feels helpless under the prime directive. As the captain pleads for Wesley's life, a machine-like being begins to orbit the planet and sends a probe to scan Data's brain. Proclaiming itself the Edo's god, the being demands that the Enterprise leave its quote-unquote children alone, and takes and take the colonists back too. The Edo are shocked that the once-friendly visitors protest their law. One Edo is even given the chance to see her god, much to the machine being's displeasure. Finally... Picard agrees to take the boy from his Edo captors by force. He confronts the Edo, who cave in but bitterly taunt the crew with their own law. But God won't let the crew beam back. Picard argues that when the laws are absolute, there can be no real justice. And this convinces him, God that is, to let them go on their way and that's yeah that's a pretty good this is out of the uh star trek the next generation companion by the way gives us that synopsis and you know that was actually a, a really good one they pretty much hit all the that major pretty beats. much uh that pretty much sums it up well
3: i don't like the name of this planet either <laughs> I, I, I have three yeah i have three potential better names for this planet maybe that should be my job in starfleet planet of the perms it could be (laughs) could be planet of the 80s porn stars Mm -hmm. or my personal favorite it's simpler one word but flossylvania (laughs) i think that's what they should call it oh man because man all those women have like some early prototype thong thing going on which once again is a little ahead of its time (laughs) that was before the whole thong craze started out so there's some awesome shots of women's posteriors in this episode to the point of almost it being leering you know the and you get and and you get to see like it's it's just great. It's You get to see everybody's buttons get pushed who, who land on the planet. You know, the natives just get them all hot and bothered. Well,
2: speaking awesome. of buttons being pushed and butt shots and tiny uniforms and things like that, um, skipping way ahead in my notes just because you brought it up, I would swear to God that that scene where Picard comes back to the ship and he brings that hot blonde along with him, just before right. they walk in that room and she kneels to her god – I'm pretty sure that I spotted some camel toe as they were walking through the hallway. I, I'm, I'm almost I be surprised
3: in this episode. So
2: yeah, I just thought that that was worth pointing out. I, I remember
3: <laughs> seeing this and when I saw it, I'm like, this is like a Robert Heinlein story. He always threw that, the, this sort of, you know, advanced races who were sexually open and dressed very scantily. It, it really reminded me of that, which was kind of cool. And, I remember when this first came on TV, going, "This is pretty, uh, head of, you know, this is pretty sketchy for nowadays." Risqué, you know? yeah,
2: yeah. It, it, it's, I think it still is. This is one that I did not let my children watch with me, actually, cause, yeah. I like
3: that they jog everywhere too.
2: <laughs> we jog everywhere. Wee. <laughs> They they must have sold 80 miles of that boob tape that, that women use uh-huh. for this episode just to keep everybody, you know. Keep everybody in those
3: little, little outfits, yeah. Because yeah. they have people jogging all over the place. It's great.
2: Yep. I I really, really, really like this episode a lot. <laughs> um Well, like I keep saying, we're going to get to that in a second. Right quick, though. I, Let's try to be ahead. mature with this issue. No, this episode, no. Will it? No? No. Okay.
3: (laughs) I'm not one to go against the grain, I guess. Well, I am, but maybe not in this case.
2: I I forgot to look this up once again, and I meant to, but the the head Edo guy, you know, because it's pretty much that guy and that girl look like they're pretty much like the leaders or whatever. Yeah. That guy... Isn't he from some '80s show? Like I don't know. Like I want to say Knott's Landing, although I don't think I ever. They all look that
3: like show. they're from Knott's Landing. Oh, That's okay. the thing is they
2: all look like '80s <laughs> porn
3: star. All the guys are—they're all blonde with <laughs> Knots Landing
2: wasn't a porn. Well, well,
3: yeah, well, maybe you might want to argue that, but in its own way, it was its own kind of pornography. <laughs>
2: okay, but, I guess. I guess maybe.
3: Uh, it just wasn't sex porn but they 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 all had that they all had that like really you know attractive actors and actresses that you would see on one of those really airheaded shows and they were all play you know i mean really they were intelligent but they were so like naive that they came off as being airheaded and they they were like um i guess ignorant in like a lot of the ways of science and were just sort of living this eden like existence but yeah, they all. I mean, you look at all of them, and they could be, you know, somebody from some TV show. And I kept feeling that constantly watching this episode. You know, I've seen that person before. Right. And we probably have. We probably have. They. Probably. All, I there's, mean, there's a
2: lot of extras in this movie, so they. There's you know. a dude that's back behind the railing there. You know, back where where Wharf usually hangs out uh-huh. in this episode. He's a redheaded guy, curly redheaded guy. And I had to keep rewinding because you only see him for like a split second, like two different times. I'd swear that guy is on TV today in some show, and I could not place the friggin' guy at all. But hopefully somebody, if somebody knows who that dude is, write in and let me know because it was driving me nuts. I know him from something I just can't remember where. But uh, yeah, you're right. This TNG especially is chock full. Of people that would go on you know because we 'll see Terry Hatcher here in a couple more episodes, playing you know pretty much just a you know pass by passing by crewman type of thing but uh
3: crewman with a with a tablet design or something like that
2: she uh clipboard she 's the guy i don 't know if you've seen the episode, but it 's the one that ha- that guest stars the Rocketeer and uh oh. she packs her right in the beginning of the episode nice yeah it's pretty cool. Until Superman shows up and kicks his ass. But anyway, um, gosh, I, I've got so many notes on this one. I don't even know where to begin. Um, for one thing, I want to point out, um, if you need another reason, and you really shouldn't need more than one, to read Will uh, Will Wheaton's book, um, I think it's called Memories of the Future, Volume 1. His coverage in that book of this episode is absolutely friggin' hysterical. And uh, it's that alone is worth picking that book up for. It's really, really funny and, and offers a lot of insight and really lets you understand. He must have been that. a happy pubo at that time uh, he, to be he, at that set. According to him, his... his portrayal in that episode of the part where the girl's like you know i want you to show me something and his discomfort and everything was was pretty close to what he felt in real life so i thought that was that was actually very funny but uh what's funny about will wheaton is he totally gets why people can't stand wesley crusher and that really plays well in in the book that he wrote i got a real kick out of that because he totally gets it because he's able to watch those shows and go oh my god you know No wonder Uh people hated me. Look at the shit they made me do, you know? So I I really like that. But, uh, you know, I'm going to... You and I had talked before and we had speculated on, you know, where exactly did we think the change started to happen with this show? And I came up with sort of a litmus test for myself to this whole thing is, where do we get to an episode that I, I feel like you could pull it out of season one and plop it into another season and it when wouldn't the matter. show was better, you know, better than season one, and it wouldn't matter, it would work and it would feel like it belonged. I think this is one of those type of episodes. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, I can see that. Everybody's pretty dead on in this one, with one notable exception, and I'll get to that in a moment. But you know who really, I really thought stood out in this one, and I don't really think I noticed it before, is Worf. This is one of the first episodes where Worf feels like the Wharf he would become right he's right really funny you know and he's got some great one-liners and he's just more wharf-like you know what i mean yeah by that he's is, not the hostile sort of right. wharf he, he's not proto wharf so much in this one as he is the wharf that we would eventually see him become and i i really liked that but uh i i like just about everybody's portrayal in this and even picard who starts out a little bit like the Picard, I don't care for, where he seems kind of indecisive. You come to realize he's just in a really sticky situation, and I even like him a lot in this one. Really, the only character well, he finally
3: gets his Kirk moment, where he gets to argue with, win an argument with God, <laughs> with the God you know?
2: computer. Yeah, you're right. He
3: gets to yell up at the sky. It's I know <laughs> if you're listening, you know this is
2: wrong because A, B, and C, and then God goes, "Oh, okay." But uh the one. Oh my God! This here's here's pretty much what my note consists of. Beverly is shit in this episode, and I mean that for both the character and the actress. I'm sorry, Gates McFadden, but you're she did a terrible job in this episode. I mean, I don't like Beverly Crusher anyway. I I, I just never really saw anything in that character. She just doesn't ever really seem to bring much to TNG, in my opinion. But wow, was she, even her acting job was just really bad in this one. She's so clumsy and kind of stiff in this one. I just didn't buy her portrayal. I mean, she's supposed to be the the worried mother and I don't know. Well, maybe she's
3: in shock because it's so, you know, the thought of her kid being killed because of,
2: well, it's it's not even and, that though. As the way that...
3: she acts, kind of bitchy towards Picard about it, right. but really, she's been the one who's been sort of pushing him towards doing more stuff, right? As far as that goes, so it's not as much Picard and Kurt. He was trying to make her happy by let's send Wesley along, you know.
2: Well, it's really the opener where it stood out to me because this is one of those episodes I've seen a lot of times because Thank I had you. it on videotape. But you remember how it was back in the day. A lot of times, if you didn't catch a show right at the beginning when you were videotaping it, you know, you might, you know, your tape might start, you know, several minutes into the show. Right. And my my tape uh, recording of that actually started just shortly before it went to the opening credits. So I missed a lot of the opener. So watching this again, you know, there's several minutes at the beginning that still feel kind of new to me because I don't remember them as much as the rest of the episode. And there was a moment I can't remember what she's talking about specifically, but you know Beverly comes onto the bridge or, or walks down to the to the lower part of the bridge or something, and she's got this whole spiel about I don't know, about the people or about something going on. And it's just terrible acting. I mean, it's it's like she she might as well have the script in her hand because it sounds like she's just reading lines. It, it's reading not, them off a teleprompter. Yeah, it's or something not convincing. Like that. It's not interesting. It's not engaging. It's just here I am, and I'm just saying something. And it was just like, wow, you're just terrible in this episode. But I don't mean to dog her out. But it just when when something like that stands out, it just really stands out. And this this is one where yeah, the this. She just didn't – she stood out because everybody else was so dead on, I thought. Everybody else, I thought, delivered a really solid performance in this one, so it just made her stand out that much.
3: Yeah, I didn't really notice that, yeah. I Um, uh, I didn't really see that. I didn't really see her as doing a particularly great job, but yeah.
2: (laughs) I love the fact, though. Everybody right at the beginning acknowledges, okay, this is pretty much the horn dog planet, right? We got all yeah. these naked people walking around. They all just want to fuck us silly. You know, let's go down there and get us some. Oh, by the way, let's bring the kid along with us. And I'm like, what? You know, Picard even has that goofy line about you know we want you to go down and assess the planet for young people and all. And I'm thinking, you know, the the porno shop's not some place you want the kid to go and assess. You know, what what fun is there for a you know for a child at a porno shop?
3: You well, know? I guess. Well, I guess. Well, they have kids there too. Because as soon as as soon as she found out he was a kid, she gave him the old like nicey nice hug. You know, instead of the right. hug she gave everybody else with a nice little kiss on the neck and a little whisper in the ear. She gave him just a little like, hey, buddy. And so, you know, there would have been kids down there where the kids wouldn't be having sex with each other. So they would have had, I mean, it would have been a chance for them to go down and, you know, play baseball or whatever, you know, or whatever. But, yeah, they wouldn't be having fun the adults are having. But that's how it should be.
2: All right. It's time for me, I think, to address the the 800-pound gorilla in the room. (laughs) <laughs> this is this is where this Mr. takes Miller? a turn for me Uh-oh. all right i love this episode and here's the reason why you've got what? an entire society that wants to kill wesley crusher <laughs> what precisely is the fucking problem here all it's right it's
3: really funny as soon as they hear about that law too they all are
2: like find <laughs> wesley yeah yeah i know it's like are oh, the kids gonna mess it up for us you know well, that's another thing too. I got to thinking about this. Now, if I was a crew member on the Enterprise, and I found out that Wesley Crusher had fucked up the free sex planet thing for me, I'd kill the little shit myself. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? You're out there. You're flying around in space. You know. You're doing your job and everything. All of a sudden, oh yeah. You know, we're, we got shore leave at this planet where you know you, you anybody down there will screw you silly. Hell yeah, I'm all for that. And then, well, uh, I guess it's canceled because, you know. And it's, and it's hilarious
3: because it's a total leave it to beaver reason. It's like breaking the flower pot on the Brady Buncher, you know. It's that sort of thing. <laughs> and they're going to kill him for it. But you know what? You know what? The, he, he was an idiot because he's doing that stupid kid thing where they run. And they're like doing the doofy. It reminds me of John Grah from <laughs> high school where they're like. <laughs> and he's running. And there's five people going, no, don't stop no you don't know what you're doing stop and at the same time all they're thinking is <laughs> and of course you know it he runs what like 800 yards what with them yelling at him not right. to do it to to in order to jump and trip over that thing so yeah i say kill him <laughs> me too I say,
2: let him go. <laughs> no! Well, you and know what's... what would have been funnier is instead of him tripping over that thing and falling into the flower pot as if it had been that telephone pole with the guide wire from my grandfather's backyard and he'd have just clotheslined playing. himself like we used to yeah, do that would have been more entertaining. We'd be but, playing you know... hide and go seek and come trucking around the backside of their house and hit that friggin' guide wire and just hang yourself. I must have I... done that a million times as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I...
3: I I thought it was was very realistic that the people they didn't really want to kill him, and they were like, All right, you know, look, if you guys take him out of here, there's nothing we can do about that, and we can put it off to make that happen if if that's how we can get out of killing him, you know, but we really don't want to. But, you know, they were open to it. They didn't want to kill him, you know, as much as, say, you did.
2: (laughs) Here's the thing, though look, Picard. right in the very first episode says i don't like kids i'm not comfortable with children i can't stand little bastards keep kids away from me right and then you've got this particular child who is the most obnoxious pain in the ass on the entire enterprise he's legitimately convicted of a crime the punishment for which is death under the laws of this planet the prime directive is in full force To me, it's an open and shut case, you know, problem solved (laughs) off the little fuck. (laughs) He broke the law. The the penalty is death. What's the problem here? You know, you, you solve so many problems with the show right here with this episode. But, uh, you know, I, of course I'm kidding, but, uh. But there are vast problems in in the way – my only problem with this episode is the way the episode ends. And I'm not being funny by saying, well, Wesley doesn't die, so this episode sucks. That's not what I mean, is that there's a lot of problems because as the – what do they call them? Not lawgivers, whatever the hell the the police officer guys are called. They bring up a great point, which is – you know, please don't do this to us. You know, you're you're opening us back up to the way things used to be before we came up with this law. And I think that that's an excellent point, is that by, by not.
3: Yeah, we didn't invite you here, yeah. you know.
2: Well, it's not even that, is that, all right, now the door has been opened for somebody from that actual culture to now, you know, flaunt the the you know to break the law, and and now you have a, a you know a case that can be cited. well well Wesley Crusher got away with it, you know. So what happens to this society? I mean, I understand that that this is a child. It's it's a horrible thing. You know, Picard doesn't want to let the kid die. Blah blah blah. I, I get all that, but I what, my real problem with the way this end of, this episode ends. Well, actually, it's not even the ending of the episode. Is it really starts. When the plot is revealed, so to speak, you know, when, when the whole thing comes down and we, we get the actual story of what's happening. I noticed much more with this viewing than I ever had before, how incredibly fucking condescending Starfleet people are to these. Eaters. Yes. I mean, they totally talk down to them when Picard says, God damn it! I guess I got to go deal with this shit. And goes down. They to talk the to them
3: like they're little children. He does.
2: He talks to them like they're like they're stupid. You know, but, like, they're,
3: but they're sort of chi- they are sort of childlike. So I think he was try. Yeah, that but it, it, it did come off very condescending. Yeah, yeah, that
2: doesn't matter. I mean, you know, they they deal with races all the time that are not necessarily very smart. Like you know, eventually we'll see the Packlids. They're a race of, I mean, they're they're pretty literally retarded. You know. But that doesn 't mean that just because they 're not on the same level as you that it's so, you know it's it 's very much like like white man Indian syndrome in my opinion yeah. i mean he 's very much saying well because the the part where it really jumped out at me was when when Picard first goes down there and Right away, the subject comes up, well, do you have capital punishment in your system? And Picard takes this totally fucking condescending attitude. Well, we used to have it, but we're so much more evolved now. and We've come to realize that it's really primitive. We've done
3: away with it. We've mm-hmm.
2: done away with it because it's just Learned. blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, dude. You know, have a little fucking diplomacy. You are totally running down their culture. You know, you're you're totally putting yourself. And he's up trying to save text.
3: the yeah. And he's 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 run afoul of their culture. He went there, brought in the person who broke their law, and now right. he wants to break. He wants to make an exception to that law, and he's coming down and being condescending and right and snotty about it. Yeah,
2: his tact works if the shoe is on the other foot. If the Edo had broken a Starfleet rule and the Edo leaders said, well, um, you know, you can cane him if you want to. And Picard's like, oh, no, no, no. We don't do that in our civil, you know, in our society. We, We have a more evolved blah, blah, blah. Then he could maybe get on his high horse and it wouldn't. It's still, I think, condescending, but it wouldn't be so bad. But he's literally telling these people, "Well, your society's fucked up, you know. We we don't agree with that because we think you're you're primitive screwheads, and that that's bullshit, man. You can't. Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? It, it just it really portrays the the. Well, it's not the first time that's, negative that's- light.
3: It's not the first time that's happened and it won't be the last. No, no, it's
2: not. But that ultimately that's my problem with the way this one ends. I I don't, you know, I, I hate to criticize without having a, a a better resolution and I, but I don't have one other than, you know, I just think it should have ended in a, in a different way. I, I realized, no, they were never really going to kill Wesley off. And that's not really what I'm reasonably expecting should have happened. But something with some real consequence to it, you know, the the Edo, you know, the Edo God, you know, pulls their planet into another dimension so that they don't have to deal with these Federation assets right. anymore. Or, you know, the, the Edo God, you know, blasts them halfway across the galaxy for their training, you know, something drastic needed to happen rather than. You know that that was my other problem with it is not only does does Picard in the end go oh, I'm sorry but I'm taking him with me you know I, I'm sorry about the whole nine yards and everything but then that the, to add insult to injury with the logic of this this ending you've got the Edo God you know in one two sentence spiel suddenly goes ah, all right I, I can see that I'll let you go and it's like yeah. what. You're, you're their god, you know? You're supposed to be on their side. That, to me, just didn't follow, you know? Maybe you could buy them getting away with Wesley at the end if the Edo god had had dished out some form of spanking to Picard, you know? Well,
3: they were trying to form some parallel between them and the god, too, saying, well, look, we just seated people at that last planet, and maybe the god was like, well, maybe they're like a less advanced version of me, you know, because he'd seated the Edo there and, or right. they'd seated the Edo there. And were, we're watching them and said, OK, these people are, sim- you know, crude, but a similar philosophy as us. So, you know, maybe we'll let their kid get a pass or whatever. But, I, yeah, it just sort of resolves, you it's, know. It's, it's too pat- ending. Like, Yeah, it's like, well, we got two more minutes here. Come on, let's yeah. wind this up, fellas.
2: Yeah, that's that's really... Because, like I say, I think it's a fantastic episode. It's very thought-provoking. But, ultimately, that's that's what my criticism boils down to, is that the, the ending is just a little too pat. You know, it's it's a little... It's lopsided. Everything ends in Starfleet's favor. And I like to look at Star Trek as a nice model for how I hope that we are in the future. Especially... You know, if we ever truly become a a spacefaring people, I hope that that human beings in the future can look back on elements of Star Trek and use that as their model for how we will deal and relate to other cultures and other peoples. However, this is a piss poor example of how to deal with these other you know, you don't go out there and go, well, you know. You're, you know, you're not human, you know, we're human beings and we've got the, blah, you know, we've got all the answers and it just, yeah, that, that's my, my real problem with it in the end is Picard's just a condescending prick in the end of it, you know, and and he gets away with it and the Edo God even backs him up. <laughs> it's just kind of messed up, you know? It,
3: it's, well, maybe it's one of the, maybe it's one of the negative human traits that's, gotten to survive you know maybe there's <clears throat> less murder but people are a little more insufferable <laughs> you know in the right. future so you know i guess i guess that's a good trade-off you know right you know there's less psychotics and there's more people who are just a little smug and self-satisfied I, i'd take that although it would be annoying also
2: but. Well, it's it's something i heard applied just to, to to star trek before particularly next gen was that the casts and the way that that they're portrayed? Um, I'm trying to remember exactly how I heard this described, but that they they were very, um, you know, an American in in Europe mentality. You know, you, you know, there's that there's that. Yeah,
3: yeah. You know what the, I'm talking the, the, about. The ugly American.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they were very much the ugly American in space. And you know it's hard to argue with that when you see this yeah. episode. It's very much that way. You know that very much. Well, I'm an American. You can't do this to me. It's, type of the ugly human is what they are. yeah <laughs> more than uh, the ugly yeah. starfleet. Yeah, and and that happens a lot because when you look at it, one of the one of the basic conceits that you have to get past, particularly in next gen, is that everything is Earth centric. You know starfleet headquarters is on earth you know the 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 people in charge are predominantly human beings and all that sort of thing which when you think about the internal logic of it does that really work because yeah right there
3: should be yeah you know you should see more aliens on the enterprise as a matter of fact the enterprise should be made of like a whole bunch of aliens you know a few of all sorts of different kinds of aliens and a few of them being human
2: right much more vulcans you know which, yeah. th- I guess that came later, the whole revelation of, of Vulcans being so much more important in the Federation and really having been one of the core, you know, the core races and all that. But still, yeah, you know, just the the whole thing that it really does so f- feel so very human-centric and Earth-centric, you know, and that that really plays that way with this particular episode where because these you know, these primitive sex people don't have, you know, human values and, and American values, then then it's okay to We're just gonna run scoff at them. Him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. But you know, one thing I think this episode does fantastically, and uh, I really caught it this time around, was how the mood of the episode just completely shifts after the, the thing goes down with Wesley. Yeah. You know, the whole, just just the feel you get, and, and the actor's portrayals and everything, it goes yeah, it's all... it's a
3: splash of cold water in the face. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, it's just like, you're down there going, alright, I kind of like this world. Oh, hey, I really like this world. Hey, you know what? This is the kind of world that I might jump ship
2: for. And, oh, okay, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, you know, there, there's that one scene after one of the commercial breaks where the whole deal has just happened, and now you know the the visitors from the sky are suddenly, you know, they're they're not so cool anymore. Yeah, and everybody, I mean,
3: nobody's asking them to go play with them.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're all giving them, you know, the the sidelong glances and stuff. But also, there's that scene where uh, where Riker. He's like looking out the window. I, I always got the impression he was checking the time, like he was seeing where the sun was. And he turns and he walks back to the main group. And he just gives everybody a dirty look, you know, the the Edo. And he just, you know, so it's it's this great standoff, you know, impression that everybody's on uh, really yeah. high tense. emotions and tense. And, yeah, I love it. You know, it it went from so... Loose and free in the beginning of the episode to just really, really tense. It's it's very well acted in in that aspect. I thought you know, you can feel, you know, you can you can really feel the, the emotion in the air of those scenes. How charged it is. I really like that. I thought that was just super, you know, super well done. And it got to preach a little. It's very It's
3: another very Roddenberry, another very Roddenberry feeling episode that ends with God. in some way shape or form but it's very roddenberry loved that like advanced society being a free love you know just generally pure society like that you know that was very much in roddenberry's existence because i think roddenberry really enjoyed getting laid
2: well Well, you were the one that pointed out just before we started recording that once again there's uh we have parallels in our two episodes again completely unplanned which which was the whole god element of both of the stories i I thought that was pretty wild we keep having these parallels creep up i know it's it's eventually
3: i'm gonna have to really stretch credibility to tie the (laughs) two together but i'm gonna try and do it all the time if i can (laughs) but so far yeah i haven't had to work very hard to to see the parallels usually that
2: that happen I didn't write them down, but I noticed Data using some contractions in this episode too. I got a kick out of that. But that's uh, oh, yes. yeah. That's all I've got on this one. But you know, I like I say, I really, I really did dig it. I thought it was. Uh, I think it's a really solid episode. Just too bad that uh, that Picard didn't give Wesley up in the end. That would have been <laughs> an absolute favorite
3: Star Trek episode ever. I think it would have been. It would have been a milestone. That's for sure. Yep. So. Should I uh, kick on the old um, <gasps> old Star Trek computer so we can figure out what... We know what episode of Next Generation and which comic we're going to read because they're next to mine, but we have no idea what original series Star Trek is going to be for next month.
2: Yeah, just to uh, just to clue everybody in, the next one for Next Gen is called The Last Battle. It'll be the one that we're covering.
3: And, uh, and of course, as always, you can see... Um, the, the episode we've been we we're talking about in the in the first segment, Bread and Circuses. Um, Circus, there'll be a link on our Libsyn site that'll take you to YouTube to the CBS page where you can watch it. Watch it. And um, so I'm seeing what random number it's gonna generate. And it says number thirty one. Thirty-one is
2: gotta be in the second season i would imagine yes. yes yes who mourns for adonis i love this episode which one is this one the is one this... with apollo oh this is out with, with his big old green hand and snatches the enterprise
3: and with alexander nope
2: <laughs> no that's <laughs> you're just one itching there. to get to that one aren't you no that yes i love it Plato's that one's hilarious stepped... i hate that episode okay. That's, that one's Plato's. The, no, this this is the one where where Apollo, the god Apollo, snatches the Enterprise out of the sky and brings yes. Kirk and you know, the people down to the planet, and he wants them to resume worshiping him like they did in the olden days. <laughs> you know what's so funny? I hated that episode when I was a kid, but now it's one of my absolute favorite ones. But we'll we'll get into that one next time. But yeah, all right, looking forward to it. And
3: just another reminder: answer those questions, damn it, <laughs> and win yourself some some Star Trek books and the pot, sweeten. Don't make us. That, and that's it. We're never sweetening the pot again. So you better jump on this one. Don't make me come over there. Yeah, exactly. Don't make me pull this podcast over and kick somebody's ass. <laughs>
2: Visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.libsen.com. 2TrueFreaks.libsen.com is spelled T W O T R U E F R E A K S dot Libson, which is L I B S Y N dot com.
3: You can email 2TrueFreaks directly at
2: 2TrueFreaks at gmail.com. You can find me, Scott Gardner, both on Twitter and Facebook. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. We are also
3: members of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check it out at www.comicspodcast.com where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up.
2: Thanks for listening. Join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks.
3: Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Corps of Milan,
2: Italy, and by the letters F and U.
3: All right, so we'll warp into the future for the next generation.
2: No, we got the comic book next.
3: Oh, shit. All right, you can cut that part out, man. All
2: right, yeah, I'll take it again.